Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Mad Mom Luke's. I'm Mahin and I'm joined by my co-host, Sheikh Hamer Saeed and Sim. On today's show, we welcome a dear friend and brother from across the pond, Dili Hussein, who is the deputy editor of British Muslim news site Five Pillars and a political blogger for the Huffington Post UK. This podcast is long overdue. I know we were trying to set something up, seems like for a year, but Dili, uh, assalamu alaikum. Welcome, welcome to our show. Real pleasure to have you on today. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh, my dear brothers. I'm assuming you left the best till the last, I'm assuming, so maybe that's why it was delayed, alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. Well, Dili, we just came off of the strikes in Syria, and you, I'm sure, have a lot of thoughts on that, and a lot of young Muslims are, you know, hoping for the Americans to jump in and save the day. What are your thoughts on that? Alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salamu ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi sallam rabbi shrahli sadri wa yasrili amri wa hlul uqtatan bin lisani yafqahu qawli Subhanallah, Syria obviously has now entered its seventh year of, of the conflict and personally speaking I don't think much in terms of Western and Russian policy has changed um, Obviously there's the chemical attack in uh, Duna and Obviously, the, it, it was another supposed, quote-unquote, red line that was crossed. And so, United States, along with France and Britain, thought they'd carry out strikes and save the day. Uh, it actually comes to surface that what they uh, attacked, or what Trump described as the perfect strike, uh, was uh, a chemical uh, de- depot, um, which the Russians then said that, you know, it was already been evacuated. We need to sometimes move out of our own personal political sectarian and partisan reading of not just Syria but geopolitics and politics in general and it's a very difficult thing to do because we're insan and we are we have our own uh, uh, biases we have our own uh, alliances we have our own grievances and I think this whole kind of understanding that America or the West would come save the day in Syria is it's a farcical idea uh, simply because it's been seven years, uh, the Western uh, powers, namely America and Britain, are already in Syria. And people forget this. They're already in Syria. Um, the American government is already backing the Kurds in the north. Um, and, 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 and as are the SAS and British intelligence services, they've been in Syria for the last four to five years. And this kind of selective air raids on certain regime positions is just a tokenistic gesture uh, for America to show, and this, for my opinion, just to just to flex their muscle as a, as, as a PR exercise. Um, and, and, and another telling example of this would be that under the Obama administration, he created a 70-plus nation anti-ISIS task force. And this, and who are ISIS? ISIS is a criminal militia. But can their death toll really be compared to that of the Assad regime and the Russia? So it just shows that there is a double standard. There's a double standard in having supposed red lines of chemical attacks. We saw this in Ghouta uh, four years ago, um, and we saw it again recently. Um, and unfortunately, the Syrians are pawns and have fallen victim to a much bigger and dirtier chess game that's being played by the regional powers and the colonial masters. And I will include within that as well. Uh, Turkey and the Gulf states, Iran, Hezbollah, the mercenaries that are coming through to Syria via Pakistan and Afghanistan, and of course Russia, America and France and Britain. 
So it's a dirty game that's happening, and it's always been the case. But there seems to be one thing that each uh, power seems to unite upon, and they agree on this, that under no circumstances can we allow a quote-unquote Islamist power to replace Assad if he were to fall. There seems to be an ijma, a consensus amongst everyone regarding this issue. Yeah, among the uh, Americans and the Russians, you're saying. That pardon? You're saying among the Russians and the Americans, even though they're Absolutely. on the opposite sides, they agree on one thing, that an Islamist government cannot take place, that it's better to deal with the devil you know than the devil you don't know. Okay, let me Absolutely. ask you guys a question about this, and let me play devil's advocate for a second, okay. if you don't mind, and, until you okay. can continue after this. So, if... Uh, as of right now, this is about. There's been about 200 chemical attacks in Syria right now. First thing is, why now is America? I know there was one last year, about a year ago in April, also, uh, where America attacked uh, another base of chemicals in Syria, and now it, it chose a time now, right? Out of all the other times, what one thing we have to think on is onlookers. Why are they choosing now to, after almost seven years, to to intervene? That's the first thing. The second thing is that we know full well that America has been arming the rebels, right? So, and and trying to remove Bashar al-Assad. So doesn't that make it inevitable that some of the, who they refer to as rebels, are now going to come even stronger and more into power? And now Independence News had just released an article, I think it was yesterday or the day before, that there's a lot more weapons directly given to ISIS by America than we actually thought. It wasn't just taken over or, 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 you know, Ghanima, if you want to say. It was rather directly given to ISIS. So how do we make sense of all of this chaos? Is some of it true? Is some of it not true? Because if, if Bashar al-Assad is leaving now, he's on his way out, it seems to be, then it, there's no other choice but Islamists to come into power, right? Is that the intent of the uh, the Americans and, the, and their allies to, like, oust Bashar al-Assad? Of these no, attacks? no, no, no. Absolutely, absolutely not. And I think I think we need to make it clear right now, as we speak, the situation in Syria is that the Assad regime have the upper hand. He is in no in in no way is he um, in the losing side at the moment. The momentum of victory is on his side. That said, when you said that, why now? Why has Trump decided to carry out these attacks now? First and foremost, they were very punitive attacks. Let's be frank about this, right? It was a few chemical depots that he decided to attack, which the Russians have said were evacuated. And, yes. and I believe the death toll was none or very few. Yeah, that's what happened so last year too, right? There were empty spots that they... There were empty spots, yeah? So as I mentioned uh, earlier, this appears to be a PR exercise because there's this whole discussion and one of the major critiques of the Obama administration with regards to his policy in Syria was that he's weak that he allowed Russia to muscle in. Um, and so Trump has obviously tried countering that, obviously with his sporadic tweets on Twitter saying, yes, the missiles are coming, blah, blah, blah. And then, of course, he carried out these punitive strikes. But in reality, um, these strikes mean very little in terms of shifting the balance of power. And with regards to another comment, I believe one of the brothers there made was, um, we know that the Americans have been arming the rebels. That's, 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 that, that statement in of itself to say in isolation appears very unequivocal. They have been arming certain elements of the rebels. Yes. And, and which elements are they? They are the elements which they term as the pro-democratic uh, forces. Um, it, it tends to be the Kurds. Um, it tends to be those, the kind of quote-unquote Islamists that they can, they can kind of are palatable that will, according to them, 
if Bashar was to fall, they will then implement a pluralistic liberal democracy in replace of Bashar. But ultimately, the main guys that the Americans are arming and training are the Kurds, who are also the main enemies of the Turks, who also seem to be allies of America, who are also NATO. So it's a dirty game. Syria, at the moment, there are so many different games that are happening, so many different alliances, so, so many different things happening, that it's sometimes it's, it's, it's difficult just to realize and recap what the hell is actually absolutely going on. So yeah. it's best for me, when I look at Syria, I tend to do it like this. What are the ultimate truths? The ultimate truths is that Hezbollah, Iran, and Russia are unequivocal in their support of Assad. With regards to the rebels, they were at the brink of victory in 2014. They were at, literally at the gates of Damascus in 2014 until, of course, January 2015, ISIS came into the scene. There was a lot of fr- um, uh, fraction with, friction within the rebel factions. A number of the Gulf states who were backing certain big uh, rebel groups then pulled the arming and funding. Um, and then you have to understand under whose orders did Qatar did Saudi, did Turkey, did all these guys lessen their support? Because we know that the Free Syrian Army is essentially uh, with Turkey. We know that uh, Jaysh al-Islam was affiliated uh, to Saudi Arabia. We also are aware that Qatar had also its own kind of rebel factions that they were arming and, and, and funding. But a lot of this has dried up now. And it was dried up ultimately at the behest of keeping Washington happy. Because it's okay to fund rebel factions who, if they were to remove Bashar, we can still ultimately have our geopolitical interests and our hegemony intact. But if you have a Sunni rebel, uh, Islamist rebel faction that takes over, that is not concerned with becoming a stooge or a proxy state for for, for America, then ultimately we don't need these guys in power. Right. So America carrying out these punitive strikes right now means very little. And they are not going to rescue the Syrians. They are ultimately there to prevent and maintain two things. Number one, their own geopolitical interests and their own hegemonic rule. Secondly, if they are going to remove Bashar, um, they're going to do so with a faction which is powerful and strong enough to remove him in the first place and to, um, you know, uh, you know, subscribe to whatever uh, America demands. And ultimately, the only guys who are willing to do this are the Kurds, as it stands. Right. Hmm. Um, so what you're essentially we, saying, you're, what you're essentially saying is America's plan right now is just to maintain the status quo until a better option comes its way. But right? absolutely, absolutely, because this is this is this has been America's quagmire since the beginning of the Syrian uh, revolution. The fact that they could they've they've armed and they've funded certain groups, and what ends up happening is that they miscalculate the Islamic sentiment, uh, which seems to be very consistent amongst the vast majority of the rebel factions. Even though it's in, theologically and sectarianly speaking, there may be some differences, but generally speaking, what made the Syrian revolution distinct to other uprisings? that were born out of the Arab Spring is that they were very, very Islamic in their in their sloganeering, in their in 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 their propaganda, in, in the kind of alternative that they were calling for. Um, and, and this is something that America and the West generally misunderstood. They, they, they could not hone in and bring under their control a big Sunni rebel faction who would subscribe uh, to their um, uh, plan for Syria. And every time they armed a a rebel faction, two things would happen. Either those groups would then go on to sell those weapons to the stronger 
Sunni rebel factions, which America wouldn't sell weapons to. Or, and by the way, there's even questions with regards to whether the CIA did this intentionally, whether they were aware of this. The fact that the weapons that they were sending to the quote-unquote moderate rebel factions, moderate pro-democratic rebel factions, that where these weapons were going to go to, the likes of Ahrad al-Sham and Jabhat al-Nusra, uh, who have renamed themselves now, they knew, um, there are reports to say that the CIA even knew that these weapons were going to ultimately be sold. Because what good are these weapons to uh, a group which is not uh, influential? So yes, America is interested in maintaining the status quo, destabilizing Syria, because as soon as a Muslim-majority country or any country is destabilized, it becomes easier to rule and manipulate and capitalize. Um, and the only thing that there is, and it seems to be an ijma on, a consensus between all the powers, is that we cannot allow a Sunni Islamist rebel faction who we cannot control, who wants to see an quote-unquote Islamic government to replace Bashar. Um, that seems to be the one thing that they all seem to uh, agree on. Right. The whole kind of chemicals are a red line and, 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 and you know, and genocide and war against human crimes against humanity. My dear brothers, we are in the seventh year of the Syrian conflict. More than half a million have died and we're still talking about red lines. Yeah. What difference does it make whether you gas uh, thousands of people to death or whether you bomb the thousand people to death or you, or, or, or you, or you shell them to death? You know, this whole kind of chemicals are a red line is, is, is an absolute bakwas. Um, and, 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 and we shouldn't accept this. It appears to be a smokescreen for Western powers to just flex their powers and play a, a game of PR. If you're going to go in, if you're, go if you're going to go in, go in and bomb Bashar and move him, even though I'm against this. But if you're going to do it, if you're going to deliver on your promises, then, then, then move him. But the West, namely America, are not interested in a hot war with Russia. They haven't got the appetite for it. And I don't think Russia has the appetite for it either. Um, so they, they, they're going to do what they did in the Cold War, and, and that is to obviously fund certain factions to do the dirty work for them. But we're not, we're not assuming that he, they're going to uh, give power to the Peshmerga and uh, the, the Kurds uh, to take Bashar's place, obviously. Just, it's just to give them their own state. So they can be yes. influential in their own state, right? Well, and also be a thorn in the that's, side on that's, Turkey, right? That's that's become the that's become the reality now. If, if we're talking 2014-15, there were still talks about removing Bashar, but right now it is to do with give the Kurds the north, uh, give the the regime Damascus, Latakia, and other key places in the, the central towns and cities, and Idlib unfortunately seems to be the last remaining stronghold of the Sunni rebels. And if you look at the, the most recent maps of where all the factions are, Idlib is decreasing and decreasing in size and in control mm. by the day. And I fear that Idlib will be another halab. Um So yeah, America are just interested in keeping Syria destabilized uh, and, and, and making sure that the Kurds are there uh, to obviously maintain and, and protect their own geopolitical interests, which, is the, which then brings in another whole entire new dynamic, and that is the role of Turkey. Right. Because Turkey is, is Turkey has U.S. bases. Turkey is known uh, to be a key U.S. ally. It's a mem it's a member of NATO. Erdogan himself praised the recent airstrikes, saying that it was I forgot the word that he used. He I think he said it was he, the word he used was either sufficient. Or proportionate. That's it. He used the word proportionate. He said the U.S. Western strikes were proportionate according to the chemical attacks that was used by the regime against its own people. So it's a messy game, yeah, Juan. No, I, I think Sim, you brought up something really awesome. Sorry, Sim, you brought up something really awesome. Is that um, not only to give them their own state, but to be a thorn in the side of Turkey to keep Turkey busy. But one thing is that many people have the question of: is that Turkey and Erdogan claim? 
many instances or show a stance of being anti-American and, you know, challenging America as if they're going to do something. But deep down, they're actually allies. Like, how do we, how does uh, somebody who doesn't know too much about how uh, the political arena is working, how do they make sense of this? You see, Turkey is one of those, you know, when you speak about Turkey and specifically Erdogan and the Ah Party, you have to appreciate, and I'm sure this is probably, I don't know, I'm assuming it probably is the case in America. Uh, Erdogan and the Ah Party have a big support network in the West yes. uh, amongst, amongst Muslims. He's seen as a reviver. Um, you know, a few people have even uh, referred to him as a mujaddid. And, people think and, of and, the whole Ottoman history when they, yeah, when they talk about him. Yeah. But I think we need to be very clear about a few things. And I've spoken to Ak Party students and their and the, and the youth wing when I've gone out to Istanbul a number of times. And what they say to me, they said to me, Dili, it appears that the supporters of Erdogan outside of Turkey don't actually understand him or his politics. We don't see him as a neo-sultan. We don't see him as a khalif. We don't see him as a savior of the Muslim world. We just see Erdogan as a Muslim ruler of a secular nation state who's battling with Kamalism in his society locally, domestically, and internationally, he's just playing a very good game of rhetoric. He does have care and concern, but he can do very little because the military uh, is ultimately still uh, run by the Kamalists, right? right? But you go outside of Turkey, and you speak to those who support Erdogan, they'll say, no, mashallah, he is the sincere ruler, what the best, he is the best of the worst, and all these kind of things. The help of the Quran. Erdogan, Erdogan in his own words has said that, that he will uphold the, the founding principles and values of, 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 of Kamal Ataturk. He himself has said to Al-Arabiya six to seven months ago that he has absolutely no interest in establishing Sharia. He has absolutely no interest in establishing Khilafah. That, that secularism, as understood by the Turks, is in no contradiction uh, with the Sharia. Now, with all this in mind, you have to understand that Erdogan is a fantastic politician. His rhetoric is fantastic. And ultimately, it boils down to two things. Either he is powerful and influential enough to do something, but he's not doing it, or he's actually not powerful and influential enough to make any military decisions. Now, whichever avenue you go down, it'd be, it'd be incorrect to think that Erdogan is in a position to make grandiose uh, decisions and moves in Syria. Because if he can do it, but he's not doing it, then this is a case of treachery and inaction. But if he can't do it, but he's claiming and, and, and he's giving it the big talk, then that would be quote-unquote political taqiyya. He seems to be very good in stirring emotions of Muslims that are looking for some type of savior. He seems like he hits that note and strikes that chord in Muslims very well. Um, if, I can, if I can Perfectly. backtrack, yes. you, you mentioned something that someone, some people may have issues with. I want to know why you said this, you know, for whatever. You said that you, don't, you wouldn't want America to bomb Bashar al-Assad, right? And you said you wouldn't yes. want like that to happen, right? Yeah. Why would you say something like that? Because I oppose any Western military intervention in the Muslim majority world, no matter how bad nice. the situation is on the ground. Right. Because I believe the, the key duty of any Muslim majority land where people are occupied and oppressed and bombarded is the duty of the neighboring Muslim countries to fulfill their duty and their responsibility to intervene for the sake of, the, for the sake of Islam and their brotherhood. It is not the duty of America, France, Britain, China, Russia to come busy themselves in the affairs of the Muslim world. We should have learned this 
from the period of colonialism. We should have learnt this after the two world wars. We should have learnt this by the formation of the United Nations and with these five permanent members of the Security Council, these five countries that, that perceive themselves as the policemen of the world. It is they who ultimately created, right? Yeah. And there's this kind of mindset that when you speak to some of our Muslim brothers and sisters, especially those that come from a, a bit of an older generation, yani, don't, don't, we're always blaming the West. We're always blaming the West. No, we're not blaming the West. It's just reminding you of history. Right. Those straight lines that you see in Africa and in the Middle East and in the in Arabian Peninsula, they were created by European men, drank of shandy uh, during or towards the end of the World War One, And it is that colonization of those artificial borders of the nation states, which is the core cause of many of the problems that we find ourselves in today, especially with regards to North Africa, Middle East. And we can even argue the same applies to India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, to some degree, right? right. I do not want, and I'm unequivocally against any Western country, any Western non-Muslim country to bomb or militarily intervene in any Muslim majority land. It is the duty yeah. of the neighboring Muslim countries to come into the aid of their brothers and but sisters. But a lot of people will tell you, Dilly, that those countries will, in effect, act as proxies, even like like how Saudi Arabia is right now involved with the rebel groups, but they're really just funneling CIA weapons to the rebels in Syria. So a lot yeah, of people they, say, by in effect, anyway, even if Muslim countries do get involved, they're working on the behalf of the U.S. government or whatever colonial power is, is Yes. That they so, serve. So, 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 so that then will nicely lead us to then discuss if it's a case where Muslim majority countries and their respective armies will not intervene until it fulfills a particular agenda that's been dictated by the White House or, or, or 10 Downing Street, then we need to then have the next discussion is how do we at least from what we can do change that reality? What can we as the awam, as the ordinary folk, as the mad mamluks, as Dili Hussein, as whoever we are, how can we at least contribute towards changing that reality. Now, we don't have guns, ships, wars, plays, and tanks. We don't. I'm sure if I had it, or if Sheikh Amr had it, or if Imran had it, or if you guys had it, or, 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 or Munir had it, if any of you guys had it, I'm sure, inshallah, we can make those changes, but we don't. You know, we have a pen, we have a podcast, we have a mouth, we've got some kind of exposure, so we then need to discuss. Why is it that Muslim-majority countries fail to intervene in the aid of their brothers and sisters? is ultimately because they are ultimately proxy states, the satellite states for, for, the, for the colonial masters. If that's the case, then we then need to discuss how do we change this paradigm? How do we change this framework? And it ultimately boils down to, or one of the key things that it boils down to is the construct of the nation state and how they were built and created and how the deep state and how these regimes operate and how they were ultimately founded and how they're being preserved. Um, and these are very deep questions we need to discuss um, and, and on every level of, of, of Muslim society. You know, we have Western political thinkers who are talking about the decline and the downfall of the nation state. And yet, sadly, you find within Muslim communities, we are here upholding these very constructs. Um, so, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, you're right. Yes, they're proxy states. So even when they do intervene, they intervene either for their own national interests or to fill, fulfill a particular agenda that's been dictated by the colonial masters. Then in that case, if, if we all accept that's the truth, then we then need to have the other conversation, which is how do we change this? Or do and we just sit here and do it diddly squat? Well, should we also like consider like I don't know, you might have, you have you have some expertise on this, the the end of the Ottoman Empire, like what actually happened internally, what was our state, and maybe look at the last 100, 200 years and see the trend, what happened, and understand why 
we don't have the Ottoman Empire anymore or 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 a caliphate example right and cuz if like let's like ex- okay so let me ask you this hypothetically speaking if the Ottoman Empire existed today how do you think a lot of this how would the world look could could you superimpose that theoretically okay so obviously you have to appreciate you've you're you're asking a hypothetical scenario but i'll right. give you I'll, 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 I'll tell you my 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 uh, envisagement of what i would believe if an ottoman state or any or or, a, or an islamic polity which transcended borders existed let's just say that but forget that the went, ottomans that went beyond the nation state model if we had an islamic polity which transcended borders which did not recognize the nation state construct which gave more precedence uh, to the identity, the Islamic identity, and that of brotherhood, then I rest assured that many of the conflicts that we're seeing today would not exist because those powers would then think twice. And even the Ottoman Empire, the Uthmani Khilafah, in his concluding 50 to 150 years, when he was at his most weakest, which is the beginning of the 19th century, right up until the end of World War One, Western powers, as much as they still perceive the Ottomans as relatively weak, they still thought twice before they. Uh, intervened or caused trouble. Um, bar Russia, Britain and France's conflict with the Ottomans became overt during World War One. Prior to that, uh, France was always uh, renowned for it being the, the traditional ally of the Ottomans, and Britain had a different tariqa in dealing with the Ottomans. It'd be more to do with uh, conspiring and instigating uh, uh, Christian missionaries, um, uh, nationalist factions uh, within the empire. It was only Russia that had, uh, for about 150 years, all-out war. But even then, they still feared the Ottomans. They still feared the Ottomans, and, and most, most, most uh, specifically, Sultan Abdul Hamid, rahimahullah. They feared this man. They feared him because he was the last great Khalif who exerted the importance of the Ummah uniting behind one Khalif to the extent where Abdul Hamid was very pivotal. Uh, in the mutiny of 1857, uh, he was he played a pivotal role. He played a pivotal role in in many of the uh, resistant movements in the Indian subcontinent. Uh, many of the Diobandi uh, movements that had resisted the British. Abdul Hamid was corresponding with it, with them. So, if such a polity was to exist today, I would say that some of these wars and some of these 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 cases of outright unadulterated uh, zulm wouldn't exist because uh, to have such a polity, to have such a superpower, uh, would, would kind of change the whole dynamics of, of global politics. And even if the superpower right. was weak, Ustad, even if the superpower was weak, it's still there's still a voice for the ummah that says, hey, you know what, don't mess with these brothers, don't mess with these sisters. At least more that voice, than, even more, if it was a weak entity, more than a, even if it was a weak entity, right? So, um, yeah. and, and, I think, and I think that's a very, very important point. Now, again, I'm, I'm sorry to keep backtracking, but you mentioned something, and many people mentioned something to this degree. You mentioned something very, very proactive. You said that what can we do from over here, whether it's a podcast, whether it's Dini Hussein from Five Pillars, what is it? Step number one, what do you think it is that we can do? Because we don't want to leave this question. This is a very, very important question. We can't just leave it up in the air, right? Even if it's very simple, people are looking for a solution, whether they're living in a village or they're living in a city. They're seeing what's happening and they say, hey, what can I do? I know there's chaos. I know there's stooges all around the world of imperial powers. There's no way we can go against them. We don't believe in armed struggle. We don't believe in violence. But we want to do something. And we want it to really, really hit home in the most proactive and and, and sensical way. 
right? So how how can we do this? Uh, you know, starting from step one, which will lead us to step two, basically. We 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 need to look no further uh, when we're talking about the ordinary lay people who come from different respective backgrounds in terms of profession and academia, uh, or whatever it may be. We're ultimately talking about the you know the Abduls and the Aminas of the Ummah who who as I mentioned earlier don't don't control armies and and, and ships and planes and tanks and stuff. We know from our Islamic source texts. Uh, that uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam are very clear with regards to how we deal with these kind of issues. Number one, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that he has raised us as the best nation amongst mankind because we enjoy in good and forbid evil and we believe in Allah. We also know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran that, um, uh, that uh, who is better than speech than the one who does righteous deeds and calls to Allah and says, indeed, I am of the Muslims. We also know the hadith where Prophet Muhammad sallallahu says that when you see a munkar, change it with your hands. If you can't change it with your hands, speak out against it. And the lowest form of iman is to hate it from within. And I don't know that there is no one that can just can just do more, less than uh, hate from within. And, 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 and the evidences are, are many. Even from the hadith, uh, from, from uh, I believe it's at Tirmidhi or Musnad Ahmed Sheikh, please correct me if I'm wrong, uh, when one of the companions asked Rasulullah what is the best form of jihad, and the Prophet responded, Kalimat al Haq, uh, the word of truth to a tyrannical ruler. So the evidences, there's a plethora of these evidences. That, that just because we don't own, just because the layman may not have access to or may not influence certain policies, we still have our own respective means. We still have access to the internet. We have access to family members. We have access to to friends and families who may who may have access to more people. So at the very least, we need to talk about these issues. We need to talk about so, it. So step also, number one is raising awareness, basically. Raising awareness, yes. We need to talk about these now, things. Now, someone can say raising awareness, and, and I'm just playing devil's advocate here. Someone can say raising awareness is just going to charge people up, but they're still not able to really do anything. Right, because we're what talking about huge international powers, right? So, what is this? I, 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 I don't accept this kind of defeatist mentality. Ah, you're just talking about it. You're gonna vent on Facebook and forget about it with your daily life. Alhamdulillah, at least that sentiment is there. At least yeah. that sentiment to talk about it is there. But how is and that course, convincing the Muslim powers in changing their mind? What is that? How? Where is that transition occurring? Because once these kind of discussions become mainstream, one of these once these discussions start happening at every level of society, then regimes and governments have no choice but to either listen or then suppress uh, these ideas and 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 and, and discourse. That, that's the only two things that will end up happening. Either the governments will have to listen, including those uh, sincere elements, if there are any within the current um, uh, construct of the Muslim majority world, or they will, as we've seen in, in, in the Arab world and, and other parts of the Muslim world, they'll just try to suppress these ideas. Well, they will but try to suppress how... them, and they will send them into their dungeons and their chambers, and someone can say, hey, this will just lead to another civil war, like that happened with the Arab Spring, and it's just going to be more Muslims killed, because when there's ideas that they want for change, for the government to change, especially if they're Islamic in nature, the government is going to lash out and be even more oppressive with an iron fist against the Muslims, and that's going to lead to some bad reactions and another civil war, right? But couldn't we say the Arab Spring was more, more, more of like a nationalistic movement than for the sake of Islam? No, of course, absolutely. I'm, 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 I kind of disagree with this kind of whole painting of the Arab Spring as an, as, as an Islamic spring. Of course, there were Islamic movements and groups involved. They utilized and... the opportunity, yes. 
Yeah, of course, absolutely. But ultimately, you know, we had left-leaning students. We had, it was a very pro, you had huge elements that were very pro-democratic. But ultimately, I think we can agree on one thing. The Arab Spring uh, was a reflection uh, and a manifestation of what the Ummah can do. If they, it, It's what they can do. Now, obviously, there was no consistent and unified voice and it was just a case of people asking for their for their rights within the framework of Islam and the basic rights, you know, to, the, the ability to have access to employment, uh, education, the bare necessities that one needs to survive, right? It wasn't about Khilafah. It wasn't about establishing an Islamic state. It wasn't about even in many cases fighting the regime. It wasn't. It was just millions of people who took to the street because they were quite frankly fed up yes. with the status quo. And they, they wanted to be as peaceful the, as possible with, too, yeah. Pardon? And they wanted to be as peaceful as possible too. Absolutely. Look at yeah, Egypt. The, the, the Egyptians, Libyans, Tunisians, even the Syrians. The Syrians didn't want to raise arms. They how how did the whole thing kick off in Syria? It happened because the regime turned its guns to its people. Yes. Right. And it's and, and it's not a shooting. It's on people. And then obviously you had you had defections from the Syrian army because there were many many Sunnis who just quite frankly refused to kill their own brothers and sisters. So they deflect. They um, defected. And then you have the formation of the Free Syrian Army. But every single one of these uh, uprisings or revolutions were, were all peaceful and they were unarmed. But the whole question, and obviously Sheikh is there with us, and, and maybe correct me if I'm wrong, and please, I want you to correct me if I'm wrong, because sometimes I just blabber on, and, 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 and obviously I will say things based on my limited reading and understanding, and especially when I've got esteemed brothers like you guys in my presence. If you're going to go out and obviously, uh, you know, uh, the chance of Ashab, Yurid, Iskat, and Nidham, and obviously uh, calling for the downfall of the regime, which in actuality meant that we want major reforms, uh, a change of the regime, uh, a maybe just government, etc. If that government or regime then now starts killing its own people, its unarmed civilians, uh, and, and there is a genuine threat of your family being attacked or your neighborhood being attacked, one could even argue that it's for the line to defend your property and your women. Of course. Right? So maybe the Syrians had no other choice but they to didn't. they realized that the regime were 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 were, were quite uh, clear about how they were going to put down these 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 uprisings. Um, maybe they had to pick up arms, and and and, and so the, the Arab Spring is a manifestation and an example of what the Ummah can do. Its potential, what it can do. But what ended up happening, and what we're seeing now, is what happens when there isn't a unified voice, or or whether there isn't a clear end goal or objective because then because through disunity and division it's easier to manipulate and for outside powers to manipulate we saw this in egypt of course we saw that uh you know um muhammad morsi may allah hasten his release and make it easy for him and our brothers from the ikhwan i mean i mean and we saw what happened with him you know the first democratically elected president of egypt <laughs> barely there for a year cc uh, initially backed him and now we know about washington's role in actually you know backing that coup Right. Yeah. Um, so we've seen what happens when an, an, a quote-unquote revolution uh, or a movement for change, when it's d- d- divided and, 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 and inconsistent in what it wants as its end objective, it's much more easier to manipulate and, and fund certain elements against other elements and cause fitna and fasad, which, you know, which happened yep. in the Arab Spring. I mean, if you're divided and conquered, it's a lot it, was, it was a cosmetic removal. When I look at, at the Arab Spring, I saw it as cosmetic change. Yes, Ben Ali fell, uh, Ali Abdullah Saleh fell, um, Gaddafi was killed. Um, these things happened. Ya Umar Mubarak fell, but the regimes remained. 
Yes, the right. deep state remained. So these were cosmetic changes. But the very same guys and the very same regimes and the very same entities uh, that kind of consolidate this, this, this kind of system of oppression is still there. Go ask an Egyptian now, what's the situation of buying bread now? It's terrible. Right? They can yeah. be, so something I've even had bread. So uh, the Arab Spring was a beautiful thing when it began. It's just very sad the way things turned out. But I'm an optimist because, you know, ultimately this is from the Sunnah. And, 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 and I see it as there was lots of hope. And there still is hope. Because I think that when the Arab world found out what it could do, I don't think that they would fully accept uh, a, a regime or a rule which they had uh, experienced and tolerated for, for 30, 40, 50 years. Yeah. Um, but I, I think I think the main silver lining that came from even the the collapse of the Arab Spring was that it, it proved to all the Islamist movements, everyone across the board, from Ikhwan to all the the North African movements that are are working to um, bring Islam into the government, that gradualism doesn't work. That gradualism is a a failure in it in itself in the sense that you are trying to change a system that will not allow itself to fail you know what i'm saying so, so not only that every system has its goal right and yeah. that that system itself if you're trying to gradualize if you want to say it's only going to make you more of promoting that its system itself right, right? the higher arp you get the more you're going to be promoting that system now it, when you go to the the arab world and and you talk to any of the brothers from the juan they will tell you point blank that you know they that they no longer believe in the way of uh, you know the older the elder Juan from the previous generation on how to work their way into power through politics. It's it's no more now. I mean, they don't necessarily want to pursue the path of ISIS where they're like maniacally violent or or that, but they are considering armed struggle against the government, right? So I mean th yeah. that's also the the other the the other I way think, that they want to operate. Yeah, I mean I mean first of all, my dear brothers, um, do you know the term Islamist is a term which I personally reject. So it's it's one of those terms which I personally refrain from using, and when I do, I always put an inverted commas whether I'm writing or speaking. But I know what we mean. You know what I mean. We're basically talking about Islamic political movements or movements or groups that want to bring Islam into government and public life. Can we agree on that? Yes, yes sir. Okay, great. With regards to our brothers from Ikhwan al-Muslimin, I think it's very important to, uh, to understand that they are not one monolithic movement, that they, that they, they vary and, 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 they, and, they, and they are different in, in, so let's say the Ikhwan of Egypt is different to the Ikhwan of Syria, which is different to Ikhwan of Egypt, or different to uh, the Ikhwan of Morocco and other parts of North Africa. Um, because for example, during the Arab Spring, um, the Ikhwan of Jordan didn't want to overthrow the, the king. They just wanted him to make some very minor reform. They were pro-monarchy in Jordan. Whereas the Ikhwan in Syria have got far more, and Egypt have a far more violent and bloodier relationship with the government. You have to also understand that the Ikhwan is a movement, and movements change. Uh, political parties don't change their manifest, uh, manifesto or their founding ideas, but movements do change. So if we look at the very inception of the movement under Hassan al-Banna, rahimahullah, uh, where it was very, it was a lot to do with, uh, you know, uh, grassroots dawah, uh, changing the hearts and minds of the people on, on a grassroots level, uh, you know, uh, building certain institutions and, and, and services for the ummah, so, so their confidence in, in Islam becomes more. Then when we start moving towards the, the 50s, 60s, uh, under the teaching of Sayyid Qutb, rahimahullah, where it was more, it was far more overtly uh, resistance-related, far more militaristic, 
illegitimate, it was, there's a strong focus on jihad fi sabilillah, uh, as well as the, the, the illegitimacy of, of, of the regime. And obviously, after the assassination of Anwar al-Sadat, then the Ikhwan in the late 70s, early 80s, kind of then started realize that, okay, uh, grassroots dawah may not have worked. Um, armed struggle clearly didn't work. Um, so I guess we just have to see what we can do from the ballot box. Obviously, that's a very simplified chronology of the Juan, but ultimately that's what happened. Um, and you're right, when you speak to some of our, our brothers uh, from the Juan, um, they don't actually see a conflict or any kind of contradiction between uh, the, the democratic system of the nation state and establishing Islam via that system. Now, I'm going to be careful as to how I word this because they are dear brothers. They are our brothers and, 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 and their intentions and, and, and the sentiments are, are the same. Uh, but ultimately, they follow an ijtihad or, or, or an idea or, or a way which, uh, quite frankly, I disagree with and, and, and I can't understand it. I can't understand how you can have an Islamic democratic nation state. I can't understand how you can implement Sharia, forget about in totality, but even aspects of the Sharia for a pluralistic democratic system. You are trying to ultimately establish the deen of Islam within a, a paradigm and within a political framework which is ajib to us, uh, one which uh, our theology and our history uh, has never really understood. Uh, and this was one of the, the diseases which affected the Ottoman Empire, the Uthmani Khilafah. They couldn't understand and fathom the idea of nationalism. Yani, what is this nationalism? What, borders based on what? These kind of ambiguous uh, uh, national and cultural values? This was something that was very strange. Um, so our brothers from Ikhwan al-Muslimin, so just to conclude on this point, they are not one monolithic movement. They differ according to which region and which country you're talking about, number one. Number two... As, a, as, as any movement, and, and I'm not saying, obviously, the Juan, I'm not likening them to the feminist movement, but movements change ideas. Um, they diversify. They kind of move with the times. These are, it generally tends to be the nature of movements, which is di distinctly different to political parties. Um, and therefore, they've, 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 according to them, they've tried and tested um, uh, certain strategies before, which, according to them, uh, and, and those metrics of, of, of measuring uh, success have failed uh, from grassroots dawah, um, um, even though that's still, they, they, they're still doing that, mashallah, tabarakallah, to, to obviously armed struggle. And I think the key turning point was the assassination of Anwar al-Sadat and, and, and obviously uh, the execution of a number of key uh, Ikhwani leaders. And, and obviously when they then became ultimately pro-ballot box, um, it, it became very difficult to understand how uh, Islam would, would establish itself um, through the, uh, a nation-state democratic system. But when you speak to some of our brothers or you read some of the works of Yusuf al-Qardawi uh, and others, or, or when I've spoken to key uh, uh, brothers and activists from the Ikhwan in the UK, um, our conversations have usually always, it's, it's never gone beyond the compatibility of Islam as a comprehensive system uh, to liberal democracy or the nation state um, because I've always maintained the position that the two are loggerheads Muslims for sure can live and survive uh, under a liberal democratic nation state Muslims can survive under any polity any uh, state structure but to establish Islam in totality uh, from the from uh, I, I can't see how a pluralistic uh, democratic system would allow that well to the western uh, mind stud, to the western mind someone will say that, well, Islam is a very democratic religion. Everyone has a say and everyone has a right. So if you're, oh, yeah. saying, if you're okay. saying that you don't want democracy, what is this going to be? This is going to be, 
you know, uh, iron fist again, but in Islamicized way. That's just what happens to the that they think the it's the awkward, it's the theocratic government yeah, exactly. where you know people. So like, wait, what are you saying? You just want one person to call all the shots and all of us live under oppression? What's the difference now between us and that and Hosni Mubarak then? For instance, no, right? I, I I think it's very important first and foremost, and I've had this conversation with a number of non-Muslims, namely academics and 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 and, and kind of. Uh, progressive uh, activists is that first and foremost, please do not conform uh, Islamic Sharia or Islamic politics with the framework of the nation state. Uh, we do not fit um, Islamic politics within the, the the confines of the nation state or or, or, or liberal democratic uh, paradigm. No, that that's you uh, trying to understand Islamic politics through the prisms uh, of the nation state. Yes. So we say no. Uh, no, uh, just because there was a shura council in electing a khalif does not mean shurocracy, quite frankly. It doesn't mean that. Mm -hmm. That was a huge leap <laughs> from a, a council of, of Sahaba, um, you know, um, giving their thoughts or electing a ruler uh, or, or, or certain tribes come and giving the bay'ah to now saying that this is all, all of a sudden the modern manifestation of it means it's a democracy, it's a shirocracy. Quite frankly, I reject that. There, there, it's a huge leap, it's a huge jump. Um, that's the first thing. Secondly, as Muslims, when we're discussing these ideas and these concepts and these arguments, we need to be very careful that when we talk about Islamic politics or an entity or a polity uh, which, which is Islamic in nature, which will, and, and let's be quite frank about this and quite unadulterated about this, and this has only been maintained by the likes of um, Imam al-Mawardi, Imam al-Shatibi, and, and many of the giants uh, in, in, in our history, that uh, the, the, the policy of, uh, of a dawla, of an Islamic state, yeah, is ultimately jihad fi sabilillah as a foreign policy if dawa to your neighboring lands uh, is, 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 uh, there's, an there's an obstacle to remove that obstacle, you need to carry out jihad fi sabilillah. So jihad and dawah is ultimately interchangeable, they're two things. Now, how you articulate these concepts and these ideas uh, to a non-Muslim or a Muslim who, who doesn't understand these, you, you need to obviously be very careful uh, because obviously there's certain laws in certain countries as to how you articulate these things. And if you don't articulate it properly, you can't get yourself into trouble. Uh, but secondly, it boils down to this. We cannot confine Islamic politics and the Sharia into the confines of the nation state. So when you say, oh, it's either liberal democracy or it's a tyranny or an autocracy. No, that or is socialism. That, 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 yeah. that's, that, that's, a, that's a spectrum. That's a spectrum that you've created. That's a spectrum that I was taught when I did my politics BA. Uh, that is either liberal democracy or an autocracy or a tyranny or an authoritarian uh, government. No, it doesn't. It doesn't have to. That's according to Western paradigms and understandings of politics. No, it doesn't work like that. Um, so when we talk about uh, Muslims' desire to see such a polity where it's one ruler or one khalif and you know these lands to be unified and you know, I quite frankly just say, well, look, hold on. If Europe can unite after two world wars, right? Uh, in what we know as the European Union, uh, and and the Muslim world has never ever seen such wars like World War One and World War Twos, then political unity is something that's most definitely on the tables. We yeah. can never rule that out. And just, How can you say that? No, yes. go ahead. Sorry. 
How can we say that Europe has the ability to unite in the formation of European Union? Obviously, there's a whole discussion about Brexit and 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 and, and populist uh, right-wing groups now wanting to get out get out of the European Union. But the fact is, Europe Europe still managed to unite after two of the worst wars in human history, and they still managed to unite, and they still managed to have yeah. shared values, yeah. or shared policies, a shared military and economic efforts. If they can do it. And they and the Europeans have no history of such unity, yet we have 11 to 1200 centuries of a track record of some level, a strong level of political unity which transcended borders. How can we say one is a realistic option and one is just a dream? But just to conclude on this point, I think it's very important also that we need to be very careful not to over-romanticize Islamic history. By no means was our history all glory and, and nor was a utopian society. Uh, Islamic history, and I wrote an article on Islam 21C called Understanding the Caliphate Between Romanticism and Skepticism, right? You find some brothers and sisters from different groups of movements who over oversimplify and over-romanticize Islamic history. But there were many bloodshed, there were many wars, there were many dirty politics and power struggles between dynasties that existed. Of course, human beings, well, well, human beings have exactly an issue of doing that. Yeah. They, they were not Ambiya, they were not receiving Wahi. These, these, they, you know, naturally, these problems were going to exist. And again, Prophet Salam prophesized this. Yes, of course. He said after, he said after the Khulafat al-Rashidin that these things were going to happen. Yes. That it's going to go into kingship, that you're going to have biting tyranny, and, then, and, 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 and that this polity known as the Khilafah will be gone. But he concluded by saying that it will come back. Yes. And it will come back upon his methodology. Yes, so sometimes I wonder to myself, why do Muslims ask questions when we already know these things have been prophesied? You know what we it is. One, the, one thing is. These, go on, sorry. Uh, sorry. No. One thing is that uh, uh, many instances we find Muslim youth in the West they link their iman to history, and if something happened historically, then they think there's something wrong with their deen. But the first thing is Stop. you mentioned Rasulullah already foretold us this through the wahi you got from Allah that's the first thing the second thing is no matter what happened in history let's just say all 1400 years were complete oppression and bloodshed from Muslim rulers hypothetically right yeah. but that still doesn't change the fact that Allah is your creator and he sends yeah. down messenger and he has angels and he has you know the afterlife none of that changes so no matter what happened, we don't depend, we don't, you know, our iman isn't dependent upon history or what other human beings have done. Our iman is dependent upon recognizing that Allah is our creator and he wants something from us and that we show gratitude, right? And, uh, and, and I know we're finishing off the whole thing about the democracy, and this is my last comment, is that in the Muslim world we saw in the last hundred years this whole concept of demokratia islamia, you know, demokratia islamia, Islamic democracy. And one of the reasons why they did that one of the reasons why the scholars of the Muslim world did that was to make a bridge between the Muslim world and the Western world, and they labeled it Islamic democracy is because they saw that there were some elements in democracy that overlap with Islam. For instance, you know, the election of a Muslim ruler is that either it's going to be a people or the people elect a, a group or, or a fact or, or, you know, a cabinet uh, of people that are going to elect, uh, you know, the, the Khulafa as Omar radiallahu an, uh, insisted, yes. you know. So for that very reason, one thing that I realize in the Muslim world is many of these scholars don't really believe in democracy of the Western democracy understanding. Rather, what they do is they, they want to make some type of bridge 
and utilize elements of democracy that overlap in Islam. But that causes lots of confusion, and I think we're dealing with that confusion now, is that when you tell Muslims democracy, well, democracy is Islamic, what are you talking about? It's an Islamic concept completely. That's what they believe, right? And uh, when you tell them that even when you're about to have a discussion, they're like, oh, you're a socialist then. If you don't believe in democracy, then you're a socialist, right? Yeah. It's either or. So I, th- I, I mean, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I, I mean, I mean, just to kind of wrap up on this point, uh, uh, Wallahi, I'm, I'm so happy that you made that point about how many Muslims regard history as wahi or history as uh, Iman dependent. Yes. yes. So I just, I just want to read one short paragraph from the article I wrote for Islam 21C. Please. Called uh, Understanding the Caliphate um, uh, Between Romanticism and, and Cynicism. So I go on to say, therefore, it is not uncommon to read or hear Muslims cite examples of civil wars, rebellions, tyranny, or misapplication of Sharia laws in the same condescending tone as Orientalist and secular liberal reforms. Furthermore, it is as if the cynics among us regard historical events pertaining to the caliphate as indicators or even evidence to what is halal and haram in relation to Islamic governance, forgetting that those who ruled the Muslim world after the Prophet Muhammad were human beings. So, it's a very poignant point you made, and I hope that Wallahi, everyone who listens to this podcast remembers this point. What happened in history is not dalil for how we as Muslims live. History is not an indicator of what is halal and haram. We have our Islamic source texts, we have uh, the Ijma as Sahaba, we have our respected ulama to carry out the qiyas on our respective texts, but historical events does not make things right or wrong, right? Um, and then on this article, I go on to give examples of where internal dynastic power struggles did not necessarily mean that the basic rights of the citizens of the caliphate were not being met. So, so it's very important. This whole discussion about Islamic democracy and the compatibility of Islam and democracy with respect to our scholars who carried out works on these topics, um, number one, they are men, but very knowledgeable men. And ultimately, as we all are, we are but products of our own society. We are but products of our environment. And it is not alien for certain ideas or prevailing ideas to influence the way we understand text or the way we understand certain ideas and realities. And when you're in a, 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 a society or an environment where you are told or you're constantly hearing um, that you know democracy is the way forward. There is you know it's the end of history as per Fukuyama and how wrong is he um, and all these kind of things. Um, naturally, our ulama they are not supermen. They are equally a human as us and they can be susceptible to being influenced by these foreign ideas as well. So I think it's very important for our respected ulama who will give rulings and who do uh, commentate on political affairs of the Ummah, whether it's domestically in the West or in the Muslim majority world, I, I kindly beg them to understand the history of democracy. Yes. Athenian democracy, yes. Roman democracy. Of course. All the way from the linguistic level, what language does it come from? Why was exactly. it started? And then that'll obviously what it means, lead us to something. How it manifested classically amongst the Greeks and how it evolved. Read the history of the Christian Reformation. Read the history of, of, of Westphalia. Read the history of, 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 of Europe's struggle um, with, with uh, the Vatican and, 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 and Roman Catholicism. Read the, the whole dynamics, the creation of nation state. Because if you don't understand these things, how are you ever going to 
understand whether Islam is in contradiction or, or, com- or fully compatible with, with it. Yes. If you don't understand these things, your understanding of democracy or the nation state is skewed in the first place. Yes. Right. Now, I heard very recently, and this is my last point on this, recently I had a respected American scholar who compared the nation state uh, as tribes of today. When I heard this, I was scratching my head and I was like, subhanAllah, I studied politics for three years on a BA level. I've never heard such a thing. Hmm. When you read European history and the formation of the nation state and the Christian Reformation and, and you know, uh, the, the teaching of Martin Luther and the Enlightenment thinkers and, and, and how all of this contributed towards the, 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 the world that we see today, then we find a respected, prominent American scholar who has a huge following compare the nation state to the tribes of the time of Prophet I was like, subhanAllah, if we're going to give these kind of analogies, uh, be very careful of the backlash that it may have, if not in our time, but then generations to come. You cannot compare the nation state construct uh, to the tribes of Arabia at the time of Prophet It's just, that's uh, like... Well, uh, well I, Dili, I think what you just said, it highlights a big problem among... Sheikh Hamer, I don't mean to offend you or your your, your classmates you. or anyone, but among scholars in general that they don't understand politics. They don't. Right? And, and they comment on things that are way beyond their 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 field or their what they've studied. And uh, for example, recently uh, a major scholar said, you know, that uh, the the Syrian war and and the American bombings of, uh, that recently happened may lead to World War Three. Now. Wow. <laughs> can it maybe but why would it why would they allow the destruction of their civilizations happen because of Syria exactly you know like like they would they would rather destroy ha- use the arab world or the muslim world as a uh, as their battleground and allow those countries to devastate themselves but exactly. they'll never implosions they'll never d- launch nukes at their own cities that they've worked you know, uh, so hard to build and uh, uh, and their economies eventually to collapse as a result of a world war, right? That's that's a very important point. And there's a few things I want to mention. Is The first thing is that in any, uh, you know, Sharia, Islamia, Islamic jurisprudence faculty, you're going to study Islamic politics on a very Sharia level, right? It's not going to really teach you worldview to and how to apply those theories and how to <laughs> apply... That jurisprudence. For instance, you have Ahkam al-Sultaniyah, right? Rulership, you know, Islamic rulership. You have Adab al-Qadi, how a judge conducts himself. What's the relationship between the ruler and the Qadi? All of that, for right now, is very theoretical textbook. Of course, it's the Sharia, but it's not going to teach you how to manifest itself today or how to implement any of that today, which is where where scholars feel that. that. That's because because those books were written at a time where there was an Islamic polity. You're right. You're right. Exactly. Those books were written at a time and a context where it was relevant. No. Right now, we live in a completely different reality. And that's why, that's why, even Azhar, even in all these universities, you're allowed to talk about, even use the word Dawla Islamiyah or Khilafah within the confines of the university itself. But yes. you're not allowed to take it outside of the wall. So you can talk about it in great detail and how important it is and how big of a fard it is and how it's the biggest fard and how all of the mu'amalat and how all of the dealings of, of Muslims individually and as a group 
all depend upon these rulings, but once you take it outside of those walls, then you haven't made it theoretical anymore, and then you're going to have to suffer the consequences. The second thing I want to mention is I remember me and Sim uh, six months ago with Mahin. It may have been Mahin, I can't remember, but we were uh, discussing something. This is more for our listeners. The listener may be thinking, um, in this podcast, in this episode, you've discussed the word Khilafa, Khalifa, Jihad. You've discussed, you know, with your guests at least 30 to 40 times so far, and you've mentioned these, and these have become taboo words, right, in mm-hmm. the past 10 to 15 years. Now, mm-hmm. I want to tell our listeners, there is, we like to use the word hijacking, right, of people have hijacked this, not people have hijacked this word, right, all the way from ISIS, and everyone is talking about this word, even Western politics keeps on talking about the word caliphate, caliphate, caliphate. So either it's going to be Fox News that's going to be teaching the Muslims what a caliphate is, or it's going to be Muslims that are going to be teaching Muslims what caliphate is. The main reason why we're talking about this word is because we're giving Muslims the pure understanding of what caliphate is. Don't take your understanding from caliphate, from ISIS, and don't take it from Fox News. Take it from Muslims. And we're trying to bring this word back because Western media is bringing this word back. So it's a sign from Allah that we have to talk about this word and you have to give it the original real meaning, inshallah. I would say Muslims who are not upon the methodology. Because ISIS are Muslims. We're not saying they're not Muslims, right? So uh, they're very ex- their implementation of Islam is very at extreme. a very extreme level. And, uh, and some can argue that they're... Uh, implementation has taken them out of the fold of Islam, but because they claim it's Allah's rule, right? Some of them mm-hmm. make claim, some scholars claim because they're I, claiming I, I, it's Allah. I, 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 I think I think those are, it's an interesting conversation because what you just mentioned there about language and certain words yeah. which have ultimately been bastardized, right? And 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 I love the way you they're... say that bastardized. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I had to marvel at that. I'm so sorry. Sheikh Hamer loves the British accent. I love it. Yes, yes. Yeah. The, the way it's been bastardized by Western media, it appears that everyone but the Muslims can speak about Khilafah, Jihad, and Sharia. Right? Well, like, it's so it's horrible. Like every man. single person can speak about it. Yet when we open our mouths about it, all of a sudden we get slapped with the label an extremist or radical, etc., <laughs> etc. Et and you know what? Ownership of language, ownership of certain concepts by our detractors is a form of oppression itself. Wow. It's a form of censorship as well. So we need to be very confident and assertive when we talk about these things. And if you're not, then you need to go and do the relevant uh, knowledge seeking uh, to find out what these concepts mean. Because guess what? Everyone's talking about it, it's except right. you. Exactly. And you don't want to be in a position where you're amongst non-Muslim peers and colleagues and they start talking about this and you're scratching your head thinking, you know, I've heard this word, and but I don't know what it means. Not or... only that, they're going to start talking about it and make you feel inferior because they know more about it than you do. And exactly. then you're going to start falling in this loop where you think something's wrong with Islam now, right? With, 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 regards, with regards to a number of anti-terrorism legislation that's uh, taken place and a number of counter-extremism um, uh, policies that have come into place in the UK in the last 15 years... Uh, one of the key objectives uh, of these policies, uh, so we have a policy in the United Kingdom called the Prevent Strategy. The Prevent Strategy is, uh, uh, it claims to be a strategy which wants to prevent terrorism. Yeah, we, uh, we have CVE. Uh, yeah, so ultimately, so it was actually, it, it, the, the Prevent Strategy was actually, uh, it was inspired by the American uh, Rand Corporation's report, um, also a number of neocon think tanks uh, that, 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 you know, the, their, their thinking uh, was a key uh, player in, in, in the formation of the Prevent Strategy. Um, and, and, and whilst they claim grandiose things like, you know, we want to prevent terrorism and prevent domestic acts of violence, etc., 
When you scratch beneath the surface, it ultimately is about two things, censoring political dissent of Muslims and, and redefining normative Islamic concepts. It has absolutely no business and it has absolutely minimal to zero statistics and, 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 and you know, victory stories about how they've actually prevented terrorism. And one of the things that they do is that they conflate uh, normal policing uh, with this prevent strategy. The prevent strategy has been around for about it's been around for about eight, nine years, and all it's ever been has been a draconian witch hunt of, of prominent Muslim activists and du'at and ulama who talk about these things. And ultimately, if the British government and Western governments in general want to dissuade Muslim youth from joining the likes of ISIS, right? If they, if they really cared, then they, they would allow those grassroots mainstream uh, groups and jawas and ulama and activists to talk about khilafah, jihad and sharia and hudud and everything else in their khutbas without being labeled an extremist, without them being spied on. If you really cared about Muslim youth not going and, 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 and being uh, misinformed by, by, by devious groups or dangerous groups or criminal groups or whatever it may be, then allow the mainstream ulama and du'at and activists, those who have a huge influence and grassroots following who are upon the umbrella of mainstream Islam, let them discuss these concepts. But you won't allow them to discuss these concepts. Why? Because ultimately they fear this. Why would you allow the awakening of the largest religious minority in your group who once at a time, just less than 100 years ago, or more, just more than 100 years ago, had a polity, were part of a civilization which existed for over a millennia, and they were ultimately at war with European Christendom for the best part of 900 years. And I know people are like, whoa, Dili, that's a huge jump, bruv. You've gone all the way from discussing Khilafah, Jihad to like, yo, to the Crusades. It's absolutely, it's, it's, it's absolutely relevant. I gave a lecture at the University of Sheffield uh, a couple of, uh, two months ago on what is Islamophobia. And I had to remind the ISOC there that brothers and sisters do not be... ISOC is like the MSA, right? The Muslim yeah, yeah. Association. Yeah, yeah. So you guys have MSA, we have Islamic societies. Yeah. So I told them... Don't think Islamophobia began after 9-11. Islamophobia began from the inception of Islam, from Abu Lahab, from Abu Jahl, from the Qurayshi leaders, all the way through to uh, the first, uh, the, the Battle of Muta, the Battle of Tabuk, all the way through to the wars with the Byzantines, all the way through to the Crusades, all the way through. It existed. And, it, and, and this kind of demonization, this, uh, this, this kind of you know, perception that the Muslims or the Turks or the Saracens were backward, were barbaric, there were Satan worshippers, the, the Mohammedan followers of, of Satan, all this, all, this, all this propaganda that existed for about a thousand years. Just because we're in 2018 and we're living in uh, uh, the, the existence of, 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 of quote-unquote enlightened um, liberal democratic states doesn't mean that these racist and these Islamophobic ideas still do not, still not exist. It's just that it's been far more articulated in a way which is politically correct. Right. Right. Yeah. Whereby certain aspects of Islam will be attributed to the medieval period or certain things will be attributed to backwardness and dogma. Right. So and it's interesting how these ideas are linked to the formation of policies. Well, you, you know, Dil, you bring up an interesting point because a lot of the criticisms that you will receive or what we receive after this podcast is, is like is from our own people 
who say that we're being Islamist or we're like throwing labels at us and seeing how they can um, delegitimize anything that we said in this podcast. For an hour or so of this podcast, I guarantee you, guys, uh, who, people who are influential thinkers like Noam Chomsky would say pretty much the same exact thing. And if they said it, it has way more credibility, right? Now, that that explains that that allows us to come to a certain conclusion, at least in terms of how uh, the Muslim mentality has been shaped. That you know, if it's coming from, if ideas are coming from a a, uh, a very liberal white man who has, um, you know, who how has. How does that make you guys feel? Talk to me. How do, how does that make you feel? That the same thing that we discuss can be spoken about by Chomsky or, or Esposito or Russell Brand, but they'd be like hailed and champed like, Masha Allah, yo, they've nearly become Muslim because they're talking about this. But when a group of Muslims discuss the very same ideas and come to the very same political conclusions, that all of a sudden we're radicals and, 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 and on the peripheries of mainstream Islam when it comes to political understanding. How does that make you guys feel? Well, sometimes it's like, you know, our worst enemies are from within. It's like I was watching um, the – you were on a panel uh, with some British folks uh, – well, <laughs> with some other British folks um, okay. and talking about, like, should we be proud of British history or should we be shameful about it, right? And then it was, for the most part, pretty civil. There was that one dude – I forget his name – that was like, it's overwhelmingly positive and whatnot – but in general, it was still respectful. Are you, about, are you talking about the interview I did three years ago? Uh, you were on a panel, and then they brought in Osama Hassan, and he started calling oh, you an extremist because of the long fasts. And yeah, and then he, and I was yeah, like, yeah, yeah. "Yo, nobody else called you an extremist, but that dude did." And even yeah. you, you were like, "Well, I got the fun from Sheikh Suhaib Hassan, who was Osama's dad, right?" And you're like, and "He's like, oh, he's an extremist too." And it's like he was so quick to <laughs> throw the extremist label, and you were like, "Oh, if dude is sick. Don't fast, bro." <laughs> like you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Is mad. That that particular that particular encounter in, uh, it was in the Ramadan of 2015. It was the BBC Sunday Morning Live Show, which is one of their kind of uh, peak time flagship shows. And we were discussing should we be proud of British history in light of Dresden, uh, when Britain uh, bombed uh, Dresden practically back to the Dark Ages. And I made it quite clear that look, ethnically I'm Bengali. Right, and just to cite one example from 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 the origin of of my forefathers, right, and that's the Bengal famine, which was carried out by under Winston Churchill. We're not even going to mention the others. Let's just talk about the Bengal famine at all. How can you expect me, as the son of a Bangladeshi immigrant who came here to help the British economy post World War II when the ratio between man and woman was one to four? You want me to sit here and talk about being proud of British history when British history in the context of colonialism was one that included looting, raping, pillaging and mass scale industrial murder. Yet you want me to sit here and be besotted with the entitlement of what you perceive Britain has given to me. At the end of the day, I was born here uh, as quote unquote British as James Dellingpole, who was a far right. Well, I wouldn't say far right, but he's, he's, he's the more kind of neocon right wing uh, pundit of 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 Breitbart UK. You, you know, you guys got Breitbart over there, yeah. Breitbart London. James Dellingpole was part of Breitbart London, a Spectator, which is like a very right wing thingy. Was he the guy and on that the, panel? Yeah, James that was him. Okay. The guy was like, "Oh, so where would you rather live, Syria?" That 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 you, that was the interview, and I said, "Look, why did you make that automatic assumption that I want to live in Syria? I'm quite happy where I am at the moment." But the discussion here is about being proud of British colonial history. I cannot be proud of British colonial history. 
you'd have to be dumb and ignorant to be proud of British colonial history. But to be proud, and by the way, there was one mistake I did make. Because at the end of the day, you can't think that every media contribution that you do is 10 out of 10. No, you right. always reflect. There's one mistake I did make in that interview. Um, the anchor asked me quite squarely, is there anything that you're proud of about Britain? And because my mindset and my psyche during that interview was all about colonial history, it came out and I said no. Um, in retrospect, if I were to do that interview again, there were things which I, I am proud of, that of Britain's contribution. Uh, its contribution to uh, uh, medical advancement, technological advancement, uh, the way the ordinary people fought against the Nazis. Yes, there are things. But if you're talking about Britain's colonial history, there's not a single thing. There's not a single thing that I'm proud of about British colonial history. And if you're going to make me feel bad because I'm a third-generation Muslim and that all of a sudden I've got, I've got a free NHS and free education, you just need to rewind some history. And if you look at history, why did my father come here in the 60s and why did his uncle and his fathers come here in the 50s? The ratio in the United Kingdom after World War II was one man to four women. There was no one to do the labor for, so they had to get people from the colonies to come do this work. So you had the first wave of migrants from uh, the West Indies and, and the Indian subcontinent. Had it not been for our forefathers, that economy would have shattered, right? Your, your, your population would have been in decline. Maybe you'd have to start uh, to legalize polygamy. Who knows? If it was four women to oh, one snaps. man. Oh, snaps. Yeah. <laughs> That's true, though, right? I got excited. <laughs> So Mahin, yeah. Mahin just wants Listen, to know. You know, we, we need to understand history, man, and, and we need to we need to get over this kind of mindset that we owe everything to the West, man. On the one hand, if you've got a red passport, or by the way, you know, in England amongst the subcontinent the Asians, we we call it a red passport. Yeah, we basically mean a British passport. If you've got a British passport and you really perceive yourself to be a Brit, right, or or an American, right, and you see yourself as an equal. Uh, to John next door or Samantha next door or, or like any other white folk, right? How is that they're allowed to criticize their country and their government for their policies? Yet yeah, we have to say chup job. We have to remain chup job. It doesn't make sense. Right. It doesn't make sense that on the one hand, you want to be equal as the quote-unquote indigenous Caucasian folk of this land. But on the other hand, it's okay for them to criticize. It's for them to... It's okay for them to demonstrate uh, political dissent, or it's okay for them to not participate um, in, 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 in uh, you know, to, to demonstrate political apathy by not participating in the general election. But when we do it, it's like, no, you're ungrateful, and, you know, this, this is wrong. Wallahi, this mentality needs to change. Or go back so, where you came this... from then. That's what they say. Go back where you came from if you don't like it. Go back. What do you mean go back from where we came from? Okay, I'll go back from where we come from. Give back what you took and I'll go back there. Well, no. You know who says that more? It's our own people who that's say that I'm more. Saying. Our own people say that to us. It's not even... Uh, that's you know. fine. That's fine. I will go back to Bangladesh. But give back what belongs to the, the, the region of Bengal and I'll go back there. Pay for my family and my friends to go back. Everything that I own in this country, compensate me. Give everything that belongs to the region and I'll go back. No problem. But you won't do that, will ya? You just want me to go back and forget... Everything else has happened. Wallahi. I, and, I, and I say this to all the listeners. What makes your home your home? Your family, your friends, and your loved ones. Yeah? yeah? That's the way I see it. You can put me in any part of this world. If my family, my friends, are my loved ones, and for me to practice my faith freely, anywhere's home for me. But in the context of colonialism, in the context of people telling me to go back to Bangladesh or go back to the Muslim lands, 
Oh, I will go back, but you. There's a caveat to that. If you're gonna have this conversation, give back what belongs to that land. And make sure and they I'll have uh, internet access. <laughs> Broadband, yeah. preferably. Internet access, good electricity, yeah. right? Good employment, all the natural resources, all those jewels that are stuck on Queen Elizabeth's crown. Can we have them back as well, please? Yeah. Right. Give us all those things back, and inshallah we can consider, um, you know, relocating. But until then, I'm happy where I am. In America, they tell the black, the, the, you know, the African American athletes who kneel for the anthem, go back to Africa. I was like, yo, your forefathers like dragged them over here 400 years ago on slave ships. Do you understand? So, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. what the hell? <laughs> as, as Malcolm X said, uh, you know, we didn't land on Plymouth Rock. Plymouth Rock landed on us. Exactly. Right. You know. <laughs> but uh uh I don't if you do you have a few minutes left to talk about Ertero real quick or do you gotta do you gotta run? I'm with you guys, man. I'm with you guys for another half an hour, forty five minutes. Let's do this. Oh mashallah, okay. So like basically, uh, okay, no. So like obviously, when we're talking about like Muslims who are always like undermining us, one can't help to think about Sadatim Kopek. Yeah. Sadatim Kopek. Yeah. Well, not just Sadatim Kopek, but there's other. Um, I think that show also shows uh, displays different modes of how people try to break down the fabric of. Uh, of society, right? Like people like Kordolu, right? The brother mm-hmm. of Suleiman Shah who wants to take power in season one. He mm-hmm. he really wants to be the one who is running things, right? Spoiler alert, by the way, if you're like like Amr and only on episode three, season one. And you, one episode from season two. Yeah. Whoa, 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 whoa. Who's on season one, episode Sorry, three? Bro. Sheikh 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 Sorry, bro. Sorry, bro. No, no, no. I, I honestly, I wish I could find the time to watch the 400 episodes. But <laughs> I don't recap service. So if you want me to recap uh, 10 episodes at a time, I can do that for you. It comes at a price, though. No, <laughs> no problem, bro. You have to pay me in Bitcoin. <laughs> oh, <okay>. <laughs> <laughs> me, me and Dilly are in this uh, Bitcoin group that we just talk all day about different... Yeah, I think Sim, Sim, you're still waiting on start season four? Yeah, so yeah, I'm, a, I'm letting season four kind of accumulate because I kind of get really antsy and... You like um, to binge. Yeah, I like to just binge. Yeah, yeah so that. me and Imran are the same. That's exactly what I do. When the latest episodes come out, I wait for the a few to come out. Okay. And right. bam, binge it. I see. <laughs> I, 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 I'm actually, yeah, I'm on season four. Like, I'm on Bolum. I just did Bolum 109. Bolum. Bolum, Bolum means what? Episode. Bolum? Yeah, okay. I think episode 109 total. Okay. So, yeah, it's 109. For Netflix viewers, that's 109 times three, <laughs> which is but, like 327 episodes of Netflix or Turtle shows. No, but we were, we were talking. Real, real, once, you, once you start watching Turtle's Ertrul, um, I, I know one of the major reservations that uh, many brothers and sisters have is that how time-consuming it can be. But uh, Imran's there, and I'm sure he, he'll testify to this, that once you actually start watching the show, it doesn't have to necessarily be a binge, and sometimes you know it, it has so many lessons and, and points of benefit for it. And, and and it is a relatively a fictional show, yeah. and it's a show which has taken uh, English-speaking audiences in the West and the Muslim majority world by storm. Like, you have to understand uh, that Turkish, the Turkish film industry, whilst it is quite well known, it's nowhere next to Hollywood and Bollywood, right? right? But the way. This show, because remember, it was also it was, it, the show is five years old. Yeah. But it only it's only been hyped in the last year, year and a half. Year, I would say year really. Once it once it once it got dropped on Netflix, and a few people watched it and started talking about it, bam! Now everyone's got their right hand on their chest. Everyone's saying Avallah. <laughs> everyone's calling their wives Hatun. Everyone's wearing wants those hats. Everyone's talking about uh, Adalete and and Kefare and all these things and. 
again, okay. it's a reflection of the state of the Ummah. And what do I mean by this? At a time where we, I would arguably say that we are yearning for leadership, we are yearning for someone or, so, or some kind of entity to play a key role in taking the Ummah out of the darkness and the plight that we find ourselves in, into a, into a scenario where there is a level of izza and, 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 and a level of unity and a level of an, an honor in our religion and to see it manifest and benefit society, both Muslims and non-Muslims, in the absence of that, such a show has really empowered and instilled a level of ghira for, for this religion. And I know that's a huge statement I've made, but I stand by it. No, no, I, and that, I want to ask you something about that too, along with that point, is do you think, just like how the Arab Spring was sparked by an incident, do you think that there is an awakening that's being sparked because of this television show in the Muslim world? Let's just say that this, the, 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 you know, Arturul is 50% true even historically, right? Whatever the case, that's not even important right now. But the fact that those concepts are there and the fact that, you know, it's showing some, lots of izza for Muslims and how they conducted themselves, do you think that, that, can, that it is bringing an Islamic change? Amongst people. I think it, I, 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 so. I wrote uh, I, I wrote an article discussing this very issue in the Middle East. I I also wrote an elaborated version in the Foreign Policy Journal. Um, it's called the Revival of Ottomanism in Turkish TV, and the Foreign mm. Policy um, uh, article was entitled um, uh, "How Ottoman How Ottomanism Will Shape the Future of Turkey in the Muslim World." Now. It's very important that we also understand that perception and understanding can, is nearly is nearly subjective to each individual. So I can watch you, you and I can watch us guys can watch Dilish Ertrul and extract certain lessons and themes from it. Um, a Muslim feminist may watch it uh, and and look at Heymana and and Akis and Halima Sultan and extract completely different ideas. And by the way, I'm saying this because I've read it and and, and discussed with some people about this. Mm. A Turkish nationalist can watch the Dilish Ertuğrul, and, and 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 then take completely different lessons out of it, uh, because of the way the dynamics are with the Ayubid dynasty in season one and then in season four. We even right? have feminists here who like the Dilish Ertuğrul. It was it's amazing. I've seen that there there are some, there are some uh, sisters that I have uh, that that are on social media, and there's some sisters that I've spoken to at universities after ISOC events. Uh, who have extracted feminist lessons from the from the behavior of Heymana, uh, from the from the etiquette of, of Halima Sultan, uh, the, the the role of um, what's what's the what's what's Turgut's wife's name, uh, Imran? Uh, Aslahan. Uh, yeah, um, Aslahan, and wow. and they've extracted completely different lessons, right? right? But then I had to also remind them that episode in season four when do you remember what Turgut said to Aslahan. <laughs> But he said, um, I don't want you attending the meetings anymore. Right. Right. I don't want you attending those meetings anymore. You attend to the affairs of the women. So I told some of the sisters, how do you respond to this particular reality? So and they, that kind of made them think. And I was like, okay, just think about it, right? But anyway, Dilish Ertul is one of those shows, like any other show, that different people watch it. They'll extract different lessons according to their own uh, thinking, their Paradigm. own kind of um, you know, mental mindset and psyche and, and, and how they perceive world affairs, etc., etc. That said, there is undoubtedly a revival of Ottomanism in Turkish uh, society and culture as we speak. And it would be incorrect. Can you define uh, Ottomanism? True. Can you define that? 
Yeah, so the whole kind of resurgence of Ottomanism in 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 their in in their in the show. So it's not just Dirish Ertuğrul. You've got Kutle Amare. You've got Peytat Abdul Hamid. You've even got Kamalis making shows like uh, Magnificent Century, which is about the life of uh, Khalid Suleiman Rahimahullah. So you've got so many Ottoman shows now. Such a thing would have been unthinkable 20, 30 years ago, and quite frankly, it'd be punishable by death under under Kamalist rule in the 60s, 70s, right. and possibly even into the early mid 80s. So, and also this kind of uh, this whole discussion about bringing back Ottoman Turkish uh, and, and and teaching it as a syllabus in schools. Uh, this whole, really? and, and it'd be untrue, and it'd be to say that Erdogan and the Ak Party haven't played a role in it. They most certainly have played a role in it, but can they be exclusively and solely praised and attributed for it? Absolutely not. How can, no matter how iron-fisted Kamalism was, you cannot take uh, 620 years of Ottoman history away from the Turks. And then if you add another 400 years of Seljuk history, that I'd say about a thousand years or where the Turks were kind of like the, the bastions of the Islamic world, you can't take that away from 60, 70 years of iron-fisted rule. So it was only, it was inevitable that it was always going to come out. Um, and that no matter how much uh, Kamalist regimes and successive um, military junta's tried censoring this, um, the Turks would never ever give up their Ottoman heritage and, and that of the Seljuks either. Um, there is most certainly a cultural change happening right now as we speak in Turkey in terms of academic circles, in terms of intellectual circles, in terms of uh, activist circles, um, and one which goes way beyond just the AK party and Erdogan. Um, but it's something which we Muslims outside of Turkey have to understand and appreciate because it's very easy for Muslims from the Arab world North Africa and 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 and, and the, the Arabian Peninsula, as well as the in Indo uh, Indo Pak community, sometimes we superimpose our experiences to the Turkish experience. You have to understand the Turks are very different. Um, and Hussein Yilmaz uh, spoke about this. He discussed this uh, in the book Caliphate Redefined: uh, uh, The Political Thought uh, in in Ottoman uh, in Ottoman History. Uh, it's a very good book written by Hussein Yilmaz. Caliphate Redefined, and he spoke about how the Sawwuf, uh, Maturidi theology, how Sufism made the Ottoman Caliphate very, very distinct to that of the Abbasids and the Umayyads. And that this Turkish experience, this kind of very confident uh, Sufism of the Turks is something which is not the case uh, elsewhere even historically speaking. And we can even say that now, when I go to Turkey all the time, I've never seen uh, a group of people uh, who are so confidently Sufi, but at the same time, I don't see them doing some of the things that I've seen in Bengali or Indian or Pakistani circles um, without going into the, the specifics of, of things which are at commonly attributed uh, to Sufi groups from the Indian uh, subcontinent. Um, so therefore, the way the Turks understand the religious Ertuğrul may not be the way we understand the religious Ertuğrul. The vast majority of Muslims that I've spoken to from the West or, or non-Turks, they extract the same things. Izza, Ghira, unity, jihad, justice, uh, and, and rooting out internal spies, etc. These are the main kind of core themes um, that, that you speak. But when you speak to the Turks, they they talk about it from the perspective of the deep state, um, uh, of, of the attempted coup, of the struggle with the Kurds, 
um, of, of, of Western nations trying to destroy Turkey from within, um, you know, the, the Gulenist movement. So, so many Turks, they see the electorally completely different. So, they, they, so right. they'll accept, yes, the themes of jihad, the themes of justice, the themes of um, adalet and, 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 and unity and all these things are fine. Yes, we accept. But they understand it from a very... And again, I'm basing this on the conversations I've had with a number of uh, Turkish students and activists. Right. Um, and, and, and they kind of understand it very differently. Yes, the themes exist, but we understand it from the attempted coup. We understand it from the struggle that we're having with the Kurds. We're having it from uh, those traitors who tried to destroy our state are, are in cahoots with, 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 the, with the crusader nations, America and, and the EU, etc. And, and that's the way they understand. I'm like, subhanAllah, that's... That's, we Muslims outside of Turkey don't actually see it like that. We just see it as a kind of general baseline default situation whereby we just like to see a return of that kind of reality in the modern age. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean... Well, I, I, I think what one of the main themes that that show um, is highlighting is how, at least what it allowed me to understand a little bit better was that there's people within our organizations our you know community establishments who are working against us now working against us not necessarily actively right they have hidden aspirations that they refuse to acknowledge uh, for example at, at a masjid board right i i put this thing up on facebook uh, that there's a kurdolu among us uh, in every masjid that. board now what i meant by that was that there are people who are working with us in our Islamic organizations or in in any organized establishment that are either working um, for you know social benefit, but they want to be known in society or they want to have influence in society, or there are people who uh, are being exploited through money because they they have they have found an opportunity to gain money through. Uh, the organization, or you know, because these these are things that are consec are, are that are reoccurring themes that are happening in the show. There are people who are being bought, right? There are be people who are looking for power. There are people who are um, uh, working as proxies for other other people, right? So we we have we have to identify these people within our organizations and i'm not saying like go on witch hunts or anything i'm just saying that we have to be aware and cognizant of of people who are working against our uh, general interests right interest. yeah look I, th I, th I think it's important to obviously also distinguish between that you know there are different levels of agents right right you've got the outright munafikin Right. And, 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 and and they've existed since the time of Prophet Salim in Medina. We, we know this, right? These are people who pretend to be Muslim, but they're not actually Muslim. They're only there to destroy the community and, and the deen from within. That's obviously the most, that's the pinnacle of nifaq and, 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 and enmity that one could have. But then you've got different gradients. You've got people who want fame, money, uh, status, position, very egotistical, very narcissistic. And they're not. They still identify as Muslim, and they probably are Muslim, but they have these traits. Yeah, like like Kurdolu before he dies, he says the Shahada. It's so funny. Like, oh, like, like absolutely. you're seeing him recite the Shahada before he gets executed. He he, he recites. Sorry, spoiler alert. That season one, you lost your chance. 
Okay. He yeah. dies at the end. <laughs> okay. Oh my yeah. So he, got, he's. Truth be told, you should have you should have finished season one by now. So, yeah. so I don't even go. But anyway, so obviously you've you've then got individuals who, and we have them in the UK as well. You have individuals who agree with certain dominant narratives uh, peddled by the establishment, and they genuinely believe that you know certain kinds or types of Islam is problematic and radical and extreme. So therefore, they join certain masajid board and certain committees and certain groups to try steer uh, policies and decisions away from what we would regard as uh, mainstream or, or normative. Um, and and I think Kurdoglu, you know, I know it's very difficult to say this, but what was his objective? His objective in season one, again, for those of you who haven't watched season one, I'll try not to go into too much detail. But one of the things he mentions, and one of the things that any kind of quote-unquote traitors or conspirators or or, or, the, or the kind of coup attempters try in the season is that the tribe is weak. The tribe is disunified. The tribe is busying itself with wars and fights which we can't handle. The, these wars and fights that Erdogan is, 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 is engaging is making us weaker. So in a funny way, they still have the interests of the tribe at their heart, if we judge it from the words that they say. But at the same right. time, it, uh, to try and achieve what they want to do, they will then conspire with the enemies of Islam and the community and the tribe to fulfill those things. Um, and Kurdoglu, for me, personified the worst kind of traitor you could possibly have. Now, I'm going to say something which some Ertrul fans may dislike, but I found someone else very problematic, and that was Gundoglu. Right. Gundoglu, and Imran, and for those of you who have watched it, if you recall Suleiman Shah in episode one or episode two in season one, he there was a reason why he sent Ertrul to Halep and not Gundoglu, because right. he, 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 he sensed something in his eyes, <laughs> and he sensed envy. He sensed a thirst for power yeah. amongst Gundogan. Do you remember that? Bit? Yes, yes, yeah. yes. Everything exactly. was like I, I, I. Yeah. Yeah. You know what but I mean? He told Himana that, you know, and, 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 you, and, and you could even tell that Suleiman Shah, um, you know, Rahimahullah, he was, he, he was kind of, um, uh, Rahimahullah is obviously the real person that existed, not the actor. Yeah, but of course. So like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, he's, uh, he, he, he was kind of, uh, he was given the tarbiya to Ertrul to prepare him to become the bait. And we saw the kind of shenanigans that Gundoglu got up to in season one, season two, right? And 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 it was it was it was he embodied the kind of leadership that has become the mainstream within our communities today. Right. When I look the at pragmatic Gundoglu, re, uh, that pragmatic nature, right? Everything it, it, we have it, to. It, it's uh, pragmatic, but very 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 scared, very risk averse. Um, always thinking about problems but never really giving solutions has it has the good intentions for the tribe and the, and the ummah at heart but the, the solutions were just problematic um, you know I, I find him to be a major problem I'll be honest with you yeah I did not find Sungur Takin um, uh, you know uh, Tuk Takin any of the guys on season I found Gunnogu one of the biggest problems yeah. Uh, to, 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 to revival and unity because he just embodied that kind of uh, docile, dead, you know, kind of like, yeah. you know, how many times does Ertul have to be right before you have to believe my brother's upon the huck? Like, yeah. how many times does this guy need to prove to you that, you know, <laughs> this is the way forward? We need to fight within reason 
in the context of the show, of course, listeners, uh, we have to fight for liberation. We have to fight to, to get what's ours. We need to oppose the enemy so they don't become stronger within our tribes. How many times does Ertul have to be right for Gundoglu to accept that, you know what, my brother's probably right. I just need to follow this guy. Yeah, he's very risk averse, very scared, you know, never taken a brave stance on anything unless it was initi- initiated by Ertul. Right. And 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 when I whenever I see Gunoy, he just he just he just reminds me of the many of the groups that we have in our communities today in the West at least anyway. And I'm sure that's the same oh, in America. Yeah, well. no, I mean even in the Muslim world, like how many times do we have to tell? I mean, look, we the, when we talk about the Juan Muslimin, it's not like we hate them or anything. It's like they they when we give them advice on uh, the the problematic nature of gradualism and that that it that word in itself is uh, a precursor to failure in your methodology and that you know you're wrong in this in your approach that gradualism does not work you have to replace the establishment that the state structure they they, they refuse that 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 uh, that idea because they they feel like they have to work they have to be pragmatic that they have to work in democratic institution over and over and over again they they fail and they it to, to the consequence of all the 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 people who die in that like just like what we saw in Egypt right all the how many th- thousands of people were killed at um, yeah, Rabala, the way there's 1500,000 possibly more burnt alive in tents unarmed. right so um, you know, you know the you know the whole concept of gradualism, right? And and I say this for the sake of your listeners as well as those from the UK who will be listening. Um, and 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 maybe if you guys had a different definition of it, please do let me know, just so the listeners uh, understand what we mean by gradualism. If by gradualism uh, we talk about uh, a continuous effort, uh, grassroots effort to awaken the Muslims by giving them dawah, by giving them. Uh, by educating them and, and, and informing them of, of certain ideas and concepts and realities and, and, and events that are happening domestically and internationally, that gradualism is fine, right? But if we're talking about gradualism to change the status quo, um, and, by, and by gradualism we mean gradualism within the very uh, system, then this is the kind of gradualism that I would humbly argue that is not prophetic. Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he had the option to join Darul Nadwa. The Quraysh invited him to the to their government. They said, you rule for one year, we will rule for one year. You know, what better offer can you have than to rule by Sharia for one year and then we rule by the Quraysh uh, pagan laws for one year and we'll alternate. Did you, Sheikh, did you or did you not have that option? Of course, and even that very much so, which, because that was in the heart of, of the seerah, but also with Bani Shaiban, when Bani Shaiban, uh, you know, Abu Bakr even said to Muhammad, we're talking about the, if all of the iman was put on the scale of Abu Bakr, everyone from the past who was ever a believer, his iman, Abu Bakr, would outweigh. He said, Rasulullah, at that instance of Bani Shaiban, he said, Ya Rasulullah, just, just budge a little bit and listen to what they have to say. We're never going to get this opportunity again, right? And what did Muhammad yeah. Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam say? He said, this no. deen is only for those individuals who want to enter it fully. If they don't yes. enter it fully, we so, have nothing to do with them. So, so now, with, with these examples in mind, knowing very well that Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he had the best offer that a gradualist in today's age could possibly have. Can you imagine, quote-unquote, Islamists or Islamic political movements were said, you know what, 
rule United Kingdom for one year according to the Sharia. Bismillah, fadl, go. Rule this country for one year, right? You know, we think to ourselves, well, you know, inshallah, maybe this, maybe this one year, if we establish the justice of Islam, then people will want it for a second year. Maybe the whole country or the vast majority won't become Muslim. Yet Rasulullah said no. He said no to this kind of change. He said no to this kind of thing. And, and, and what's the kind of, that's the kind of kias that, we, that, that many scholars and even ourselves, when we read the seerah, we understand this. Sometimes I will make husna done for our brothers and sisters from the Ikhwan al-Muslimin and, and, and because the way they see it as is that look, we've been given a bad hand and we need, just need to make the best out of a bad hand. And it's got to a point now where I speak to some of our brothers from the Ikhwan and they no longer see a conflict or a contradiction between the democratic nation state and Islam. There, there is no contradiction. That, that, there was a time where they'd accept that yes, democracy in its asal is haram, is kufr. Right? But that discussion doesn't even take place anymore. Now it's more to do with, well, there's actually no contradiction if you think about it. We'd, yes, we'd like to have a democratic state where Islam is the predominant religion and, 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 and it's a source of law, yes, but we will still have different political parties. Uh, we will still have a pluralistic system and we will still recognize international uh, law and, 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 the, and, and the Geneva Convention and, and, and all these kind of uh, international laws and norms and etc. Um, and I, and I, can't, I can't marry it. And yes, Gundoglu personifies not just our brothers uh, from the Ikhwan, but the Muslim community as a whole. It be, it's become the predominant thinking and that's been the case not just recently, more so after the war on terror. But the war on terror has been actually quite funny because on the one hand, it's cemented that idea, but on the other hand, it's also awoken a number of youth. So Gundoglu personifies this kind of leadership, which is very risk averse, doesn't want to take risk, doesn't want to take noble principle stances, which may, yes, result in some death and some bloodshed and some sacrifice. But inshallah, the result usually ends up being better. And he just personifies that leadership and, 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 and it's worrying and I find it very frustrating. And wallahi, I was, even though it was very sad, spoiler alert guys, so block it is, um, even, even, even it was one of the most upsetting scenes and I was literally in tears, you know, in the last two episodes in season two, when, you know, Ertel ran for being Bay and he paid off the, the, the other Bays with the gold that was given by Sa'adatin. Right. Right. And, 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 and that departure. It was so upsetting that last hug between Ertel and Gundogan. Oh, right? Man, that was so was, powerful. Like, like, I, I tell you straight, you know, and, and brothers, I, I was practically in tears because, because I was in tears for two reasons. Number one, it was just fantastic acting, right? And and fantastic acting spurs emotions. But most importantly, you're letting your younger brother go when you saw the so many examples of this guy being right to the extent that your father even followed your brother. But due to whatever reasons you have, whatever inferiority complexes you have, you've allowed your brother to split from your tribe. And, you know, we see this in, we see this in, uh, in, in, in the West. And, uh, and the reason why I say the West brothers is because obviously, whilst I know these things must be happening in the Muslim majority world, I can only comment on, on, on things which I've observed and hear about and see and read about uh, in, in, in the West, namely the United Kingdom and of course, by extension, uh, America and Canada. Um, and, and it, we need to move away from this. And, and I really hope the listeners who do watch Dirilish Ertarul, watch Gundogu, and, 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 and realize that this guy, as sincere as he may be, remember, Gundogu's sincerity is never brought to question. Bar that right towards season two where he takes the gold and pays off the base to win the election. Bar that bit. 
His sincerity is never, ever brought into question. When push comes to shove, he did more or less always fight. Uh, and, 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 you know, and, and he, was, he was an honest and honorable man, but his politics was all over the place. Right. All over the place. Because he sacrificed so, his principles. He sac- because once he sacrificed a little bit, it was an opening for him to sacrifice uh, more later on when he ended up paying off the other base to win the election. Absolutely. Um, and, 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 and these things, I hope listeners and, and can watch the show and, and extract these kind of, uh, you know, themes and lessons and concepts and ideas. And yeah, you know what? You'd probably watch the program and think, oh, we've got a Gundoglu in our community. Oh, we've got a Kundoglu. We've got Ertul. Okay, maybe we have some Ertuls, inshallah. But inshallah. You, start, you start identifying local people that you know and you start identifying them to the show, which is, you know, it just is, again, it's just reflective of how the show can actually uh, resonate with so many Muslims. And of course, there's even a growing non-Muslim audience for the show as well. I mean, I went to, met, um, I went to meet the, the production team when I was in Istanbul uh, in March, and I will be flying out to Istanbul um, possibly before Ramadan or after Ramadan to meet the cast and Brother Mehmet Bozdag, uh, who's the producer and the director of the Daily series. Uh, tell them I'm to come on our about. tell them to come on our podcast, bro. <laughs> tell them to cut. Tell them to come on our podcast. <laughs> I will. Yeah, well, well, we talked to the the TRT team. That... The TRT team emailed us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But and, we want to uh, guess. We want to. I sent to them. them some videos on. They wanted some fan videos as well, and uh, I sent them. They they had like a three hour time constraint, like. We need, were, we need something right now. Yeah, yeah, like we need right now. So I quickly took a video of my daughter, because, who's like a huge Arthur fan. She's eight years old. Yeah, she's she's, she's, she's watched the seasons over and over again. She doesn't watch any other TV show <laughs> out there. She only watches <laughs> this show. You'd rather have her watching Dinesh Edrul than someone of Bakwasa's. Of course. She's what, nine years old or eight? Eight, eight years eight. old. She was teaching me Mashallah. yesterday about, she's catching me up to date. What she, happened she, in season one and season two. I was impressed. <laughs> She's she's teaching uh, Sheikh Hamer about uh, the Seljuk state, how yeah. it came before the Ottoman Empire. Not even that. His son, yeah, who's like five years old, is telling me about the Seljuk state. I was like, Mashallah, man. Sim is preparing some historians here. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, yeah. Inshallah. So you're going to be talking. You're going to be meeting the cast and everyone. Yeah, yeah. So uh, Inshallah, that's the plan. So when I went out to Istanbul uh, on the first week of March, um, I, I was honored to go and visit the Dirilish. Uh, office. Um, their main office is in the Asian side of Istanbul. Uh, I was accompanied by my good brother uh, called Bilal Toniali. Bilal Toniali is a growing uh, young activist and, 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 and student of knowledge. Um, and may Allah bless him and preserve him and, and may we have more like him within our communities. And he has been my kind of uh, point of contact because obviously there is a, there is a, a language barrier. Uh, so I met um, uh, I forgot the, the brother's name is, and I can't actually pronounce his second name. Hussein. We call him Hussein Bay, I believe it or not. Um, and um, he's like the, the marketing communications director for the whole show. Uh, brother Mehmed Bozdak's father is currently unwell, uh, so please remember him in your du'as. Um, he's, 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 he had some uh, some brain. Um, it wasn't a tumor, but he had some brain issues. But the team are very very busy. They're doing uh, road shows and TV interviews practically every day when they're not in. Uh, the village of River, which is just outside Istanbul, filming the series. They, they, they do always constantly doing media shows and, and, and interviews. I will most likely fly out uh, to Istanbul uh, to meet the cast at the film set, interview them uh, and have a main interview with Brother Mehmet Bozdag. Um, most likely before Ramadan, possibly after Ramadan. I'll keep you guys tuned and for sure when I speak to Brother Mehmet, I will ask him to honor you guys uh, with an interview. Inshallah. Inshallah. Well, you know, I heard Injun is coming to uh, America in August. 
based on an interview he did. The problem with Injun is that he's actually a Kamalist. If we'll ask him about the at... show. I'm not going to ask him about politics. Yeah. He doesn't talk about politics in the interviews anyways. <laughs> I knew that was coming. I knew that was coming at some point. Look, the thing is, look. They're actors, people right? Are... Yeah, people are trying to say, look, they're actors, right? And um, uh, I, I forgot which newspaper it was. Uh, I think it was an American newspaper. Someone asked him, you know, has playing the role of Ertel Ghazi, has it changed your life? And he just squared. He said, no, it hasn't changed my life. Why should it change my life? I'm an actor. Wow. I'm an actor, you know? I get paid to play roles, right? Um, and then I also done a, a bit of research and I found out that uh, Brother Engin Altinduziatan, um, at least previously, uh, had voiced uh, certain opinions that were practically Kamalism. But we pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that those, those views and opinions change and, Amen. and that, you know, he, the, the, the role that he is Amen. playing, that it has some kind of effect and influence in the way he perceives um, you know, man, life, and universe. Uh, but you have to also appreciate, brothers that, and, and listeners, that they are actors, you know? Um, if people knew that the vast majority of the actors in the Omar series were Alawites and Christians and Maronites and, you know, really? I didn't know, you know that. How, does that, how does that make you feel? I mean, yeah. they're actors. Right. Uh, that's what we need to detach ourselves from the actual actors and the, the roles that they're playing and the themes and the lessons that we extract from these shows and, and, and any program or any film for that matter. Um, because I've had so many brothers and sisters, uh, brother, you know, does brother does brother Engin pray Salah? I goes, look, man, first and foremost, I don't know these things. <laughs> uh, you know, if your brother prays or not, it's up to you. Obviously, we know that uh, uh, the, the brothers who uh, play Dwanalp and Abdurrahman and, and, and even Bamsi, uh, they're, they're known to obviously, they've made Umrah and, and, and you know, they, they do a lot of charity work. and But the others, obviously, uh, you know, they are actors, man, and, and 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 most likely they probably do come from very secular background. But we should make dua for them and, and and hope that whatever role that they play uh, changes their heart and their mindset with regards to how they perceive uh, uh, Turkish politics and just Islamic politics and just just life in general, really. But yes, uh, Engin Altin Duziatan, who plays the role of Ertul Hazi, had previously voiced views and opinions um, that could are commonly associated with with, with Kamalis. Um, and in a recent interview, when he was asked, has uh, the role of playing Ethel changed you as a person? He said no, um, yeah. uh, which is quite upsetting if you fell for him. Well, uh, not... <laughs> again, look, it's about the message, right? And I so, think... Absolutely. So it's important for listeners not to fall for the actors, right? right. Don't fall for the actors. Just take the show yeah. as it is, extract the lessons and concepts, Apply it to how it applies to our reality in the West and in the Muslim majority world, and and of course tell others to watch it because I think it's a fantastic show. And I, and, and you know I've, I've again I don't want to mention any names. I've heard some uh, students of knowledge and oh how accurate is this show? And it doesn't matter how accurate the show is. They tell you how accurate it is. It, the vast majority of the specific incidents and events are fictionalized. Whereas the historical chronology in the in, 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 in where the show is set is very accurate, impressively yeah. accurate. But the, the whole kind of skirmishes and the dramas and the, the moist love stories and all that kind of stuff, yeah, that stuff's all made up. The vast majority is made up. There's only like 12 or 15 pages of history uh, regarding Ertul Hazi, rahimahullah. And even then that was uh, written by uh, Ottoman chroniclers that came like 100 years after. 
Right. Um, so, so you know, keep in mind that yeah, you know the vast majority of it is fictionalized. They even tell you that as a disclaimer, I believe, at the start of every episode. Um, yeah. So there's no need to start measuring a show based on on how historically accurate it is per se. But Edul Ghazi, rahimahullah, for sure, um, is was a renowned warrior. He was a noble bey, and and these things, and he he laid the foundations of what was known as the Ottoman state, uh, which was established by his son Sultan Osman I in 1299. And of course, um, Ibn al Arabi. Uh, did meet him. Uh, I doubt they met in the frequency that they did in the show, but he did meet him in real life. And, and Sheikh Kabali as well, um, who also met him, uh, who became later on the father-in-law of, of his son, Osman. Um, so, but I, I, I don't think we need to judge a show on how historically accurate it is per se, if it's given the Ummah a sense of empowerment and, and Izzah and, 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 and quite frankly, even if, it, even if it's just an alternative to watching trash on TV, why not? Yeah, yeah right. right. Exactly. Last yeah. question, uh, Dili. Uh, outside of other than Erthoril, uh, who's your favorite character in the, in the show? You can't use the say Erthoril. Uh, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be honest, there's, there's two. Can I mention two? Sure. Yeah. Um, Heymana. Yes. Heymana, like, you know, MashaAllah, Tabarakallah, I mean, if the real Heymana was like that, um, I think uh, without such a figure, uh, the future of the Ke'i tribe and, 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 and even the, the, the Ottoman state, uh, which she did live to see, I believe. I believe, or did she know, she just passed away just when Osman, I don't know, but, but, but she either died whilst Osman, Sultan Osman was in his teens, or she did see it. Heymana personifies and embodies the kind of... Uh, female leadership that is required and that is of wisdom that is of the compassion of a mother the wisdom of a wife and the experience of someone who was married to a bay um, and for me even Heymana sometimes made a few decisions which weren't in line with Ertrul's Tariqa right. especially in season 2 yet she was humble enough to acknowledge the mistake she sought forgiveness, she repented, and then she kind of was just like with Ertel all the way after she made a few major blunders in season two. But I think someone like Heymana, she reminds me of my own mother, um, and she reminds me of, 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 the, of the many brave mothers that exist within the Ummah who hold households together, who hold uh, entire families together, who are the bridge between um, uh, entire families and, and, and groups. And, and for me, she is one of my favorite characters. They're, they're the cornerstone of society, right? And when you, when you think about like how Middle Eastern, when you look at Middle Eastern politics and things like that, and you see like, wait, how did these men come to, uh, come to power, these wretched people come to power? Or how did these people who are torturing Muslims in, in their, their own fellow Muslims in their prisons, how did these men come to where they are? It's because the, the woman or the mother was weak in that, uh, in that society. So it's so important how well, high man. Or it could be that it worked the other way. So they, they had a, they had a Heimana type figure but she just stood for Barton. Right. It could also be that, right? Right. So it's so so important that we keep our daughters strong on, on the deen and, you know, make sure that our women are strong in their deen, in their ideas and in their belief, right? And 
Sah, absolutely, and, 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 we, and we should all, always, uh, and I'm sure we, we all do, and, and I ask our listeners, especially those who are parents, uh, we constantly make dua uh, for our daughters and our sisters and our mothers and our aunts and our women folk because uh, the, the current climate that we live in, um, because um, in most cases they're not, they tend to be more identifiably Muslim and more overtly Muslim that they, they do face a number of backlashes and, and Islamophobic attacks. And, and, and for them to wear the hijab and go out in the jilbab or, or the niqab and, or just having a headscarf even or just dressing modestly or, or one which is it, it's, it's a, it's a real life struggle for them. Uh, for something which, you know, brothers who don't a thaw and a beard may not experience, especially if you bench as much as Imran. Um, you know, you may not experience these things. So we, we should always make dua for the preservation of our, our women for the deen and especially our young daughter, because some of the stuff that's being taught in schools uh, right now, not that it, of course, it affects boys as well, but, um, we, 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 you know, we naturally know as Muslim men, we, there's, 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 there's an extra sense of protection and reader we have for our women folk. And, 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 it's, and, and it's part of being... Uh, a Muslim man at the end of the day. We know we love our women folk and therefore our sense of protection over them is, is something that is paramount and, and tends to be far more than, let's say, our young nephews and sons. Um, so Heymana is obviously one of my favourite characters and, and I also find... Um, uh, um, subhanAllah, I forgot his name. Artuk Bey. Ah. Artuk Bey is, 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 subhanAllah... He is he is the kind of right hand man, or or in Italian Cosa Nostra terms, he's the consigliere that you yeah, need. Consigliere, yeah, consigliere. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he's the, he, 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 you need him, right? And, and for those of you who've seen Godfather, I think it was in part uh, part one where 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 Pacino he goes and he says to his brother, my he says he goes, look, I need a war. I'm going into war. I need a wartime consigliere. I don't need you. You're a peacetime consigliere. Um, and 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 and, and Artuk Bey personifies and embodies both peace and war um, and the kind of support and advice that he gives not just as someone who's well versed in medicine and health and 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 and, and um, sorting people out when they run well and and remedies it's the political advice that he gives and and, and again spoiler alert five four three two one for you guys to block it is uh, in season four uh, you know oh. when uh, there was a struggle between um, uh, Bay Sim just took and, his headphones off. <laughs> Sim's not seen it for you. Keep going. Keep keep talking. So so, so, so Dundar Bay and Artuk Bay and Artuk Bay remain firm. He's like, I am not going to let you ruin Ertuğrul Bey's legacy. I'm not going to let you shatter all his hard work by selling uh, Handi Pazar and then us Ooh. migrating back to uh, wherever we came from to unite with your brothers who ultimately you know let us go. And Artuk Bay, you know, that's the kind of right-hand man and deputy that you need you know it's just someone just to just to remind you of your 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 mission because sometimes those who are on a mission need reminding of their own mission and you always need not yet I mean, not, I mean, not, I mean, we know this from the hadith of prophet muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam that the best of companions are those who remind you of allah you know and art pay for me you know the the advice and the support he gives Ertrul, um you know is is just invaluable and he is actually um, a, a key uh, player um, in, in, in the kind of um, um, worldview uh, and the kind of um, state that Ertul is, 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 is in, in the process of building. So those are my favorite two actors. On top of that, yeah. On top of that, Sim, another take your headphones off again. Uh, on Artuk Bey. <laughs> so, you know, um, also he, he gets married and then 
Um, well, actually, I, I can't say anything because he can hear me. Yeah, <laughs> I was gonna mind. say. I was like, wait, uh, I was like, wait a second. Well, I don't know. Why I, I can't get a spoiler alert, but uh, <laughs> yeah, so I, I won't use that example. But D- Dilly, you know where I was going with that. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's good. I mean, I mean, it's good. I mean, I mean, look, the fact that he kind of devoted his life uh, to seeking knowledge and, and 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 working on remedies and stuff like that, and 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 it it, it was it was a kind of it was a kind of. Uh, sacrifice that many ulama and many students of knowledge did back in those days and 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 it's not that they remained celibate uh yes they had slave girls um and so so they did have intimacy with but they didn't they, they didn't devote themselves to marriage and there were very prominent ulama who had this lifestyle where they because you know being married and you know it, it takes up a lot of your time and and and, and marriage sometimes could even be a fitna for you it destroys sometimes. your life yeah, and and Artuk Bey, you know, he he and you know, Bumsi was always egging him on, and then and Alhamdulillah, he 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 got married, didn't it? Mashallah. <laughs> Alhamdulillah. Well, uh, we'll, we'll wrap it up here. Uh, Dilly, how can people find out more about the work you do and uh, your presence online? It seems like you've got a lot of interesting insights that, Mashallah, a lot of brothers and sisters can benefit from. But how can okay. they reach out to you? Okay, so uh, you can you can follow me on Twitter at Dili Hussein number eighty eight. Uh, that was the year of my birth, the Gregorian year of my birth. That's eighty eight. Yeah, you're a young cat. Yeah, wow. uh, that's what, that's why when uh, I think it was Simi or someone saying the Bosnian War, I was like, I was only five six years old. <laughs> <laughs> Man, oh, I thought you dang. were much older. Wow. wow, it makes me feel bad. I was an eighty. Yeah. I'm the youngest out of these guys, and I'm thirty six. Mashallah. <laughs> I'm sure you guys are all young in heart, really. Mashallah. Yeah, so this is Twitter, Dili Hussein eighty eight. Um, you can follow me on Facebook. Uh, if you just uh, if you can follow my personal account, that's Dili Hussein. Or I have a Facebook page called Dili's Desk, and of course FivePillarsUK.com uh, to 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 stay in, um, up to date with the latest news, especially uh, in the UK and Europe. And of course uh, you can find my articles uh, in the Huffington Post UK, uh, the Middle East Eye, uh, the Foreign Policy Journal, Al Jazeera. Literally, just just a simple Dili Hussein Google check yeah. will bring up everything that you need uh, to follow my work, some of my media contributions. Uh, I can't promise that you'll agree with everything that I say and I write, um, but I do so f- uh, for for the betterment of this Deen and this Ummah, inshallah. Okay. And if there's just one bit of advice I can give to your listeners before I part from you, beautiful brothers, is that if you've made it till the end of the podcast, you may be asking uh, asking yourself, why is it that the brothers chose to spoke about speak about Khilafah, Jihad and Sharia and, and why were certain uh, if it appeared as shots at our brothers from the Ikhwan I want you I want all the listeners to know that first and foremost these concepts which we discussed are part of our religion they're part of the deen that Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam came with via Wahi these are not alien concepts these are not concepts which we should allow any other people who do not identify with, 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 with this religion to take ownership or define for us there is 1,300 years of scholarship, um, which 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 uh, explain and define what these 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 concepts are, and the reason why uh, myself and the Mad Mamluk crews decided to speak about these concepts is because these very concepts are hot topic, and if we don't take ownership over these concepts, then someone else will, yes. and when someone else does that, you will be left out of the loop, asking yourself, why do I not know about these things? So. And these, these, these topics and, and, and by, by the way, the conclusions that we've reached, uh, government think tanks that are like Brookings and uh, other think tanks that are working for the U.S. government, they've reached the same conclusions. So we're not where I mean, if it makes you feel a little, a little bit better about what we've talked about, 
they've already reached these same conclusions that they know that 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 they can't stop the eventual rise of the Islamists throughout the Middle East. That they know they can't stop it, so they just want to kind of control it in, in whatever way they can. But but that's a, that's a topic for another. And you know, just for that for, for for putting in that reminder and disclaimer. But just the very fact that you even had to do that. Right. Right. The very fact that you had to jump in there and say, look, by the way, guys, Brookings Institute and or, or the Henry Jackson Society in the UK or or, or, or the or the Inde- or the policy index guys in the UK and all the other neocon think tanks that exist and the Rand Corporation, by the way, they're talking about it, guys. So it's okay for us to talk about it. It's so sad exactly. that we have to put that disclaimer in to to make Muslims feel like, oh, it's okay if they're talking, if the kafara are talking about it, and, you know, if the Muslims <laughs> exactly. talk about it, we can talk about it. You know, let's 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 move away from this. And I will leave on 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 this statement Be- of Umar because we have the same, like we said earlier, we have the same detractors within us, our own mashaykh and our own people who, uh, you know, the the people look up to for for knowledge is like, oh no, Mad Mamluks are talking about something that is. You know, uh, something strange or something that we're not really supposed to talk about. Like, there's people out there who have already discussed this much thoroughly than we have in this of podcast. Of course, and they're not even Muslim. Wow. I, just, I, just, I just want to say two little things, Brother Juan, before I go, yeah? I know also there's been some uh, statements that have been said by both parties in this podcast where we've referred to ulama. Just to make it very clear, we're not referring to every single scholar who's devoted his life to this religion. Um, When we talk about ulama in the context of these topics, we are talking about certain kind of ulama who, for whatever reason, whether it's unintentional or intentional, out of ignorance or out of full knowledge, um, are perpetuating and contributing to a particular mindset which we feel is cementing and continuing this 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 intellectual and political and leadership decline that we're currently facing uh, so we accept that our scholars are indeed the inheritors of the anbiya but that is not just a blanket hadith they have to embody the behaviorisms the manhaj the 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 the, the, the way of the prophets to be the inheritors of the prophet sheikh am i correct there of course you are sir how can you be the inheritors of the prophets if you are not like the prophets how can you be regarded as the inheritors of the prophets if if what you're teaching and what you're what you're what you're propagating is 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 quite in fact the opposite of of, of the works of the anbiya, right? So we love our ulama, we love our scholars, we will hold them on our shoulders and and we will give them izzah and honor. But at the same time, we will also remind them and 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 and, and will not shy away from saying that there are elements within Islamic scholarship today. That are contributing to a particular mindset which is problematic. And I advise those mashaikh and those those students of knowledge and those do art that please, if you are going to comment on political issues or if you're going to extract Islamic rulings on political realities, please, I beg you for the sake of Allah, go and learn about democratic theory, the evolving of the nation state, um, the struggle of the Christian Reformation. Understand these things before you pass a ruling or a judgment uh, on a particular reality. Because if you don't understand these things, then quite frankly, you're given a ruling without, without fully understanding or, or encompassing uh, the, you know, the reality and the theories and the actual history of these constructs and these theories. And last but not least, for the youth who are listening to, to uh, this podcast, we are living at a very, very unique time in Islamic history. And do not be bystanders in, in just watching things happening and, and witnessing things happen. Contribute. Contribute with whatever you have. 
if you've only got a Facebook account, utilize it with Hikman, use, utilize it for good. If, you can, if you're able to write, write something. If you're, if you're able to speak, speak to your friends and family and loved ones. If you're not confident about your religion, go and make that effort, that conscientious effort to go out and find, about, find out about your deen. Because how can you be an ambassador? How can you be a, 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 an advocate for this faith if you don't know about your faith? When John and Samantha ask you about something and, you, and your face goes red and you're scratching your head thinking, SubhanAllah, why don't I know? Go and make that effort so you can be an ambassador, so you can advocate uh, for your faith. And on the very last thing, never ever dilute this religion. There is no reason to dilute this religion. We have our, our framework, we have our theology, we have our aqidah, we have the framework uh, and, 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 the, and, the, and the limits of how we understand and make sense of things um, around our world. And, and of course, I conclude with the statement of Umar al-Khattab where he said that Allah, we were the most disgraced people on earth and Allah honored us with Islam. And if we seek honor in anything else but Islam, Allah will disgrace us again. And that Allah was obviously Allah. a different variation of that statement of Umar al-Khattab. So please, um, remain strong in, in your deen. Um, seek knowledge, remain firm, be a proud Muslim. And, 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 you know, there's no need for you to be apologetic. There's no need for you to be scared. There's no need for you to have fear because these are from shaitan. And we're living at a time where we need more Ertrus, more Salahuddin Ayyubis, more Saif Qutus, more Aurangzebs, more Khawlas, more Khadijas. We need more of these people. We don't need less of them. We need more of them. And, and, and I pray that those attributes of those great figures I've just mentioned amongst many others, there's some of their attributes and characteristics in every single one of us, inshallah. Inshallah. Barakallah Fiqh, Dili, you know, uh, real quick, um, do you like Bengali food? I do, yes. Oh, I, I guess I'm, I'm the odd one out. I, I'm, I'm looking for some allies and like anti... I, I'm, I... <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. Let, me, let me say something though, and this is going to be very controversial. <laughs> I don't eat fish as a Bengali. Yeah, so like maybe it's a select. Well, that's the thing. I've never. Everyone talks about fish biryani. I've never had it. I've never heard of it. My, actually, yeah. I've, I've never I seen it anywhere. Food. I love Bengali cuisine, but I don't like fish because the smell of fish and the fear of getting a gosa, a, a bone stuck on my throat, just scares me. Right? We, we talked uh, about this last night on another podcast. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> my my no, had a, a bone that got stuck in his body. tongue. I love it. Yeah, when I was in fifth grade, when I was like about ten years old, I had a bone stuck in my tongue for a week. Yeah. <laughs> oh my days. You know, and, and also when Bengalis get a bone stuck in their throat, the remedy is banana and rice. Right. I've done that, yeah. I was eating yeah, a banana and rice. But just to tell you just to tell you listeners something about myself, I had a bit of a naughty habit. I used to love bon. Bon and shapati, yeah? Yeah. I used to love it. Guys, when I mean I used to love it, I used to eat it after every meal. To the point where, you know what, maybe maybe it was a bit of an addiction because sometimes I used to go to sleep and not brush my teeth and have bon in my mouth. I know that's a bit sick, yeah, but I thought I just <laughs> when, I got married, when, when I got married, my missus said to me, um, you know, uh, you're appearing on television and stuff, and your teeth just red, and it's not nice. <laughs> oh man, <laughs> I love it's, it. It's, 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 it's quite grimy, and you need you need to stop it. And I was like, Subhanallah! It, it took uh, my my wife to tell me, Look, you're coming on TV and stuff, and your teeth blood red. <laughs> so I made a custom, and I made a uh, to her that I'll, I'll stop. Uh, <laughs> but do you know who the main person who gets me back on it? My mother-in-law. Oh <laughs> <laughs> really? That's funny. <laughs> Man, I, you know uh, what, uh, brother? I really don't say too many guests, especially after one meeting. 
Um, but man, we all love you for the sake of Allah, man. Likewise. You are an awesome brother, inshallah. We hope to meet you in person and to spend some inshallah. time from you and, and spend some time with you and benefit from you. Honestly, just this one conversation from the after the first 15 minutes, our love, uh, I think I my love for you has grown so much as, as a Muslim brother, man. Honestly, and this guy, he, he don't say that about everybody, too. There's only like a few handful of guys. I don't mean I don't love people, it's just not easy for me. You to know, say like, that like usually, there. like Dr. Muhammad Gilan, I know he's mentioned that, yeah. but very rarely does uh, the Sheikh Amr give that kind of compliment at the end of the show. Like he, he he's gonna be like raving about you. Oh yeah. And if, if there's if there's ever a reason you guys come to the United Kingdom, um, I would be the first to host you in my house. And we, you are gonna be the first one we call. I'm guaranteeing you that right now. And and if there was any mistake for the listeners and for the Sheikh himself, if there's if there's any mistake that I made, it was from me alone and any khayr and any good was from Allah. And if there's anything that I said, uh, anything pertaining to the deen which was out of place or anything, again the mistake was from myself. Um, and any good was inspired by Allah alone. And and I I want you guys to remember me in your duas. And when I come down to Chicago or where you guys are, I'll be coming and hollering at you guys soon. Inshallah. Please, please. Inshallah. Yeah, inshallah. 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 All right, for our listeners. Well, just love. Look after yourself. <laughs> Absolutely. For our listeners out there, if you have any questions or comments, you can email us at themadmamluks at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook. We're on Instagram. And give us a five-star review on iTunes. You can subscribe on iTunes, Podcast Addict, or Stitcher Radio. And also, we are on, on YouTube. You can listen to the shows on YouTube. Not enough. Uh, we need more what followers on likes on YouTube, right, Sam? Yeah, on YouTube so that we can – we're close to 1,000. And, and I think once we hit 1,000, we can start exploring the idea of actually putting these episodes on video. So Right. It's, but a lot of people have been asking about us going, like, having video feeds and whatnot. So. But Mahin has to control himself. No. <laughs> Anyways, that's not <laughs> happening. They, they, they want to see unfiltered everything. Anyways, uh, for, you know, so for our special guest, Dili Hussein, and for my co-host, Sheikh Amr Saeed and Sim, this is Mahin signing off for the Mad Mamluks. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum.